Welcome to the Crash Chords Podcast. I am Matt, a.k.a. Stormageddon. I'm John. I'm Steve. And I hope you feel like dancing a jig today. I don't know. You got a bar out of me. Just a bar. You could have definitely done more than a bar. I could have. I could have, but... Well, you never We have an album. Unless you're really drunk. I mean really drunk. I don't really dance so much as I Flop around? Yeah, it's more like a slow motion seizure. If you want to watch what's akin to a train wreck, watch John Dance Drunk, I think. No. Isn't there like I a CCTV thing in, in a couple of those bars? Dance. I gotta get a hold of that footage. No, well, no, definitely not. Definitely not. <laughs> can't stop me. It's done. It's done. No, but you won't be able to because I don't dance in bars. It's true. He does. I, I dance. He dances at weddings. He dances at like. Oh, why do parties. I need footage then? All I have I is hundreds it, I of sing. witnesses. I just sing. <laughs> he does sing. I sing a lot. Okay, that's good. Yeah, that's he yes. can be jolly. He did sing Blackbird once at the way station, and you were that drunk. Hard. Yeah, it, it was, was really, really hard. hard. That's a tough one. I'm to terrible say. at public singing. All right. Well, enough of that uh, shenanigans. Uh, this week, if you tuned in last week or read the uh, what we're doing next week or read the title of this episode or looked in one of the browsers that you're using for what the episode consists of, you know we're doing Flogging Molly. There it's, are ways to there find are ways. what there we is, do. There Numer- are ways. Numerous. Numerous, actually. We're Not in many a place now. Not innumerable. I'm many a place now. <laughs> yeah, I don't know why I became Italian suddenly, but, but I did. We are in many a place. We're in many a place now. Um, God, I should never do accents. Anyway, um, so yeah, so I picked Flogging Molly, and there are a few reasons why. Um, if you've been living under a rock and don't know who Flogging Molly is, Steve's going to go into that in a bit. Um, but I want to talk a little bit about why I picked this record, which is their newest record, Life is Good, which as of when we were recording came out like a little less than a week ago. Well, there's a lot of reasons. I mean, so I, I drifted very closely to Foggy Molly in a, different, a few different ways. One of my exes was very into them, but also my wife is in a Celtish, Irish rock band uh, that leans on traditional and rock and roll, um, but they tend to cover a lot of Decemberists and Flogging Molly and the Pogues, so you get the idea. Um, Other bands who draw from that ilk. Yes. So I... I reinvigorated my love for them. I've liked them since they came on the scene with their first studio album in the 2000s, even though they've been together since 93. But I kind of fell out of them for a while until their album that came out in, I want to say 2011, I believe, um, called Speed of Darkness, which was the first modern album that they put out that I listened to cover to cover. and really fell in love with it. Um, You know, it was some traditional stuff, some punky stuff, some Celtish stuff, you know, what they're known for. (laughs) But in finding out that they had a new album coming out and loving that album that came out what six years ago now um so much i was like oh well i have to do their newest one it'll probably just be more of the same in the same way that we've you either laud or despise acdc for constantly putting out more of the same whereas for me i love that and john loves that steve not so much um (laughs) um, flogging molly uh, is akin to that kind of a band for me although i did realize something recently so in an attempt to be the advocate for this album and continue to better articulate why I like this record, I went back and listened to their discography. And I made a statement earlier today that's not true. I said that their later work is actually different from their earlier work, but actually their formula for a successful album has not changed since their very first record. It's the same structure of a little bit of punk, a little bit of country, um, a lot of rock and roll, you know, and a lot of Celtic influence. Um, That mostly comes from the instrumentation and the build on it. The only major thing that's changed, I'd say in the later three albums, is that the production level went up a bit. Things sound a little cleaner. As they do, because, you know. You just get 
better quality stuff. Yeah. But something like that actually will make it sound a little bit less punk and a little bit more country or a little bit... Provided you judge yeah. these genres by their raw qualities right. and whatnot. Yeah. But yeah. one thing that you can argue is it does make all of the instruments sound more crisp. And that's something that I, I've liked on their upward progression. And something that will be a defining point for this album, at least to try and defend it, is that the instrumentation on a Flogging Molly record has never sounded this crisp. Now, is it the most crisp any band has ever sounded? Eh, that's really, harder. No. That's no. really harder to say because <laughs> you hit a level of production. It's like the increasing graphics on a video game system. Eventually, we hit a point of no return where it's just the best and it doesn't differ from the other best. Mm. And I think with production quality, we're getting to that point too where everything just sounds really good production quality-wise. It's the content that makes it better than the other, but the actual ability to produce high-quality music is becoming easier and easier and easier as tech gets more accessible. As, as a little bit of an aside, I wish our listeners could have seen the way Matt was gesticulating describing this production quality because it was, frankly, amazing. See, I stopped bringing up actual physicality No, this on the one podcast. I have to call out. Yeah, this one I have to call passe. out. Yeah, yeah. That's so last year. Or more. <laughs> or maybe like an episode or two ago. Did we really do an episode or two ago? You did it did at I? least two episodes ago, if not Let last the episode. audio speak for itself, yeah. man. Yeah, all right, whatever. <laughs> I see how it is. Um, but yeah, so I, I, I bring this album as obviously a fan of the artists and an advocate for the record, but also because, well, I couldn't help myself because the title of the album is Life is Good, which is half of our catchphrase. Um, and didn't oh, we have? Oh, I didn't and, think of that. And and ha, didn't uh, music is life was a track on Daft Punk, wasn't it? Or was it something like that? Oh, I, I I'm pretty I, sure. I, I have to double that check. It was a long time. It ago. was a long time ago. But I'm pretty sure that track and then the life is good track would make the music of our motto. I don't think they could have anything less to do with each other. Actually, I don't know. You eh. Put them together, make them fit. I don't know. Posh. I think, all right, I want to go back to something you said earlier. You said that, in general, these albums, all of Flogging Molly's albums have this, if not theme, uh, consistency to them. And the consistency is the genres they draw influence from. You will find a little bit of punk, you'll find a little bit of hard rock, and obviously the pervading Celtic influence that is there pretty much defines them, actually, to most listeners. But they've also drawn from Americana, a little bit of country, a little bit, which is But who do they draw from? Celtic folk, like yeah. mostly because yeah. their ancestors a did. And that's why ska. we have all that There's stuff. always a dash of ska on top uh, of it. it. They 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 go a gauntlet, but there is that mm. just the identity of Celtic rock that has been there. Well, you may find a dash of ska later. I don't know their discography well enough. Matt knows their discography well enough. Was there a dash? I mean, of they've ska used earlier? horns before. Yes. Okay. So I mean, but they've used but, horns. But we can't we can't say horns equal ska or Joe Rue will come find us and kill us. Okay. Yes. Okay. Yes. And I think actually it's more that the people who would go to flogging Molly would also go to ska. I yeah, think it's more sure. that I identify the person rather than I identify the two as having anything necessarily to do with each other. That's fair. Okay. Well, there is a reason, of course, why all that stuff kind of blends together, and that's because lead singer Dave King, well, he was born in Dublin. I believe he's the only band member that was born in Dublin, so there's obviously some authenticity there. Uh, but he had, believe it or not, a heavy, heavy metal and hard rock background. But he always wanted to infuse Irish instruments into his work. And then finally, 1993 is the earliest day that I can find where the earliest form of flogging Molly took some some cohesion, some shape, and they used to play actually kind of a mix of all those things. They played some rock, they played some Irish traditional, they played some 
rocks and Irish and just kind of went back and forth. Even back in the bar they used to play at quite frequently, and that was the bar in L.A., where I believe all the band members met together, uh, if not in the bar, at least in the L.A. vicinity, and they played Molly Malone's Pub every Monday night, apparently, and they played the bar for so long that someone said it was like they were flogging the pub to death, hence flogging Molly. My experience with Flogging Molly is not nearly as extensive as yours, but it's always been pretty... I don't even want to say secondhand. I want to say like a hand and a half. It's about a hand and a half away because I knew so many people that knew them, then it's like you're bringing it just a step closer than a true secondhand, secondhand band. Yeah. Like, I knew them better than I knew Wilco, which right. is what brought about the, the secondhand band discussion. But, yeah, I, I, I can do Celtic Rock in a pinch. Um, it's, it's definitely fun for a live show, for a romp, I guess, with the beer taps flowing, that sort of thing. But for that reason, I confess it's a little bit difficult for me, believe it or not, to make the jump to album. Because it's not like bedroom listening material for me, or even commute listening material, and I don't know why. Perhaps it's actually just that. It's the genre's intrinsic association with the live event, and more so with the bar, and with socializing. It's just so on the nose for me that I can't take myself seriously listening in a private setting. I'm like, I have to be out for this kind of thing. I'm, I'm not out right now, what am I doing? So it's, I think it's that separation, that cognitive dissonance that's just a little bit odd. Well, I was a first-hand listener. Like, I, I kind of seek them out, and I kind of didn't. Because I was already within the, the that sort of scene, and the scene that they became well-known in and grew up in, with uh, other bands a little bit earlier and a little bit more outside of that kind of genre and fusion that they did, where they were drawing from a lot of different areas. I, I became a little bit more obsessed with, like, Dropkick Murphys or Less Than Jake or Bowling for Soup at that same exact time because they were more identifiably one of those things that we've been already been talking mm. about, where they were Irish rock or where they were ska or where they were pop punk or something like that. And yet they so kind of flogging, fit the same criteria for me, a little... Well, but Flogging was a little bit of this, a little bit of that, and they were just a little bit... A little bit later than what I was already listening to. Because okay. Dropkick was 95, 96, 97, where they started dropping their first few albums and I started getting into their yeah, stuff. Yeah, even though Flogging Molly began in 93, I think their first like studio album was 2000 maybe? Yeah, Correct. 2000-ish. Yeah. So it was, I was introduced to Dropkick and I was introduced to other things like that. Like I believe even me, like Me First in the Gimme Gimmies, I was already in my repertoire and... Um, I was already leaning towards other weirder things like Suicide Machine at that same exact time. So it's like I already had my fill of Irish rock with one band and I had my fill of ska with another band. So I, I always listened to them in that I listened to the parts that were on the radio, but I never delved into their album the same sort of way. Like it was a passive like, okay, I'm not going to change it. Oh, this must be the new thing by Flag and Molly. Oh, he just announced it's the new thing by Flag and Molly. All right, I'll listen to it. Mm. Cool. Let's go back to the other things I'm already familiar with and already singing along and belting along to. Wow. They were still everywhere. Yeah, they that were. was what made so it kind of inescapable. I knew them. I knew them, and we both kind of knew them, but we didn't delve. Gotcha. So Steve mm -hmm. mentioned their first album came out in 2000, Swagger, which was their first studio album, but they did have a live record before that. Um, they have put out. Since Swagger, five other records, including the newest one. There's a total of six records altogether. Um, every two years for a while, and then there's a little more of a gap between each album. This being the longest gap of six years between records. Um, which I think a lot of bands, as they continue their career, album gaps tend to get bigger and bigger. They're not Tool, don't worry. Yeah, oh God. <laughs> <laughs>
Maynard. <laughs> yeah, I'm on record saying that, and I love Tool. Uh, um, I need to bring back the bleep for this early in the <laughs> Exactly, you're welcome. Um, but I think it was what was important to me about bringing this band on is every so often I like to bring a band on that I'm passionate about. Because as I said, and it is important to note, Flogging Molly has a shtick, as it were. This album, at least on a superficial level, does the same thing. Now, does it do it as well or not as well? We're going to talk about that. But it's important to note that Flogging Molly has always had a sprinkle of political, a sprinkle of the working man's music, a sprinkle of the traditional, and then all the other stuff we mentioned as well. A sprinkle well. of they're in Ireland for it, some reason I, in the 19th century, and you just are supposed to believe that. Right. It's, it's, but then they get teleported to the 21st century, and all of a sudden, electricity and the instrumentation that goes along with that. There you go. And, and this happens from track to track to track. But what I'm saying is that that's very... Flogging Molly. They have a sound. Just like Dropkick Murphys also have a very identifiable sound. Yeah, and it's just that whole, like, have a sound thing that I guess is why I, I went into that little spiel about my experience with them, yeah. just because it, you know, it, there are some musical reasons behind it, but I feel it was more just, that's a sound. I mean, like, I have that on reserve for a very, very special case, but it's also almost a little too specific sometimes. So that, but that, that varies from person to person. I was I just wanted to get out the, the natural bias out in the open so listeners can take everything I say with a grain of salt. But both about what I both expected and didn't expect about this album. Right, and that's why I brought up ACDC earlier, because of all the rock, modern rock bands or rock bands that have been around for so long, they are very much the ones who have barely ever changed their sound once they got um, Brian Johnson as their lead singer. And for some people, that's enough. And I openly admit that's enough for me. And Flogging Molly can fall into that vein. But is it strong enough to just have that feeling to um, excuse other flaws? I mean, the, answer, the short answer is no, but can it affect how you view a record. Ooh, a pre-album topic. Right. Even though we're not answering anything well, right no, now. <laughs> no, no, But it's something to come back to later, I think, because it did it did influence my decision to pick this album as an advocate. Yes. Because I have less grounds to stand on when I'm just saying, well, I like their other stuff, so I like this. And it's a piss-poor argument, and so that's why I wanted to challenge myself with this, because if I can defend it beyond that... It shows the weight of the band and their skill and talent. I suspect me and you may be in odd, at odds in certain places. But let's take a look at the album cover before yes. we get to anything else. And that album cover is, well, black and white, firstly. Kind of a poor shot. Like, it's not very crisp. There's not a lot of lighting. Kind of poor lighting, and it's of a child's face. Who could that be? Well, it's not just of a child's face. Not just. The child's also flipping off. The individual viewing said album cover. Yeah, uh, I, see, I, I, didn't, like, I didn't realize that was the finger. Yeah, yeah, no, that's is. that's the finger. It's just weird because the lighting on it is so odd that the shadow kind of doesn't make it so obvious. But yes, yes, he is. Which screams not just flogging Molly, but like late '90s, early aughts, Warped Tour. Screw of which you, were, man. It, it was sort of like it was sort of an identifiable concept from that generation of alternative rock music. Get yeah. off my back, man. Yeah, yeah, but looking at the photo, it's not, because it's black and white, and the, the young boy, it looks like an old photo of maybe David King when he was a boy. That's who I was thinking, and that's maybe. What I'm, I can't or confirm it, that. I mean, I believe him and his wife have, have children, and so it could be one of them as well. It looks like he's kind of in an old world baby hat, too. Right. Like the kind and you so really he, don't see anymore. But he's wearing a seatbelt, which isn't something that would fit King's age. Hmm. At least from a, a social standpoint um, of requirements for children to be wearing seatbelts. Um, I don't know. That I, goes back I, pretty was he far. Born in it, like yeah, but it wasn't a law until significantly more recent. Born in like '66, I think. Yeah. yeah. 
Yeah, I don't know, maybe right in the line. Yeah. <laughs> but either way, it's, it does give an old-timey feel, but that young boy slipping the, flipping the bird is a very 90s aughts thing to do. You're like, oh, it's funny, little kid's flipping the bird. And so, like, it, it, I think it's a good aesthetic to portray um, their style in picture form. I mean, the previous album covers have been all over the place, and so, like, this is not following the formula, as I had mentioned with some of the instrumentation and music of their stuff. This is... The first time, I think, to my knowledge, they've actually used an actual picture as an album cover. Mm. So, yeah. But it also specifically works off the context of the album title, Life Is Good. Yeah. Not only because the words themselves are next to the hand, and yeah. that's how I distinctly see them, even though they're lower right-hand corner, but with the hand centered lower down in the picture itself, it's it's commenting on the title of the album, which implies either a satirical or an ironic slant by itself. It's also, it belies the title. That's what I like yeah, about yeah. it. it. It gives the lie a forefront kind of nature of the title. Oh, but it's life also is good. really obvious in that case. Like, yes. Life is good, really. And right there. You don't even need to listen to a note yet. And already you're getting that. Yeah, but that's the sort but of also, thing that you get. I, I, that is, that is, that's uh, the 90s. Yeah. yeah. Well, and also, that's, it needs again, to be. not uncommon for the, some of the stuff they do. Singing about the hardships of life while putting on a front or a face, as it were, is not uncommon for them either. So them doing that here also makes a lot of sense. I do like that their logo, the Shamrock, which has um, artwork within it, it's very tiny, I believe, next to Life is Good. It's it's a period it's, at the end, yeah, just in, in some way. It's not as small as a period for the actual font size being used. No, it's where a trademark would normally be. Exactly. Yeah. And so that's an interesting use of their logo work instead of making it more obvious. But then again, they're also making the words Flogging Molly, the book spine on the left-hand side. So it's not like you're not going to know who it is. Right, of course. But let's uh, make movements towards actually reviewing this album, shall we? Yes, we should. Track one, There's Nothing Left, part one. Which is the age-old thing of bands doing a part one, which assumes there'll be a part two. We'll get to it one day. Someday. Well, it's like Metallica, I think, between now. They're only lying temporarily. Metallica, part (laughs) one and part two. Oh, no, they were just... No, yeah, Unforgiven 2 was on Reload, and Unforgiven 1 was on Black Album, and Load was between those two albums. So you had to wait a whole two albums to get the uh, sequel to that, and then Unforgiven 3 didn't come out till Death Magnetic, maybe? Yeah, so but even we weren't expecting a third part. That's true. Because it, it, part one implies only a second part, unless you're we talking about I, the history of the world. Part one, because then that yeah, there was no part two. There, there was, was a joke none. About it. Well, that's yeah, the whole idea because yeah, yeah, yeah. Mel Brooks is conscious of these things. Yeah. And I believe it or not, I'm sure there are a lot of people because, of course, Metallica actually did follow through on it. But I'm sure there are a lot yeah. of bands that never actually did do their part twos. And there are blogs and and internet critics just waiting. They never <laughs> did one. I never got it. All right, but well, I'm sure Flog and Molly will probably follow up. And I'm curious what they're going to follow up with because, well, it's not as if this is like some giant opening epic necessarily it's it's pretty much in line with what they do no surprises here this is a traditional irish jig it is triple meter that kind of quick six feel um kind of like last week there are places you could argue 12 might actually make more sense considering the melody later on but also not really because the whole point of a jig is to keep it moving it's kind of a constant churning sensation a little bit slower than that nevertheless um the second thing that becomes pretty obvious after just a few seconds is that 
Yeah, after 20 years of doing this, these musicians, well, almost 30 years, these musicians certainly know their craft. Of course, the whole Celtic feel, uh, old world feel that is, it's pretty effortless. Uh, almost in every instrument is reminiscent of that culture, and that's why I just want to walk through all of the instruments one by one. First of all, we start off with some little light finger picking on the acoustic guitar. Nothing too Celtic yet about that. But then we establish a nice long E pedal on the upright bass. That kind of sets the stage for, of course, the violin. Probably pulling like 60% of the Celtic weight here, because it's basically an embellished precursor to the melody. If you compare it and his vocals later on, they have kind of the same phrase structure. It's just that the violin is a little bit more colorful. It's got extra notes, it's got grace notes, and there's almost a continuous slur over this melody. You don't really get the sensation that the bow is ever being lifted from the strings. And it's these kind of affectations, combined with the jig, of course, that perhaps make it, more than anything else, just scream out Irish, Irish, Irish. But also, the violin's second phrase is where we get another instrument, and that is the accordion. Just to bulk it up, the accordion is kind of like a latent staple of most of Europe's folk traditions at this point, all in very, very different ways, but it's it feels like it just needs to be here. It pairs with the violin really well. And then finally, you get two instruments at the same time, that is, well, his vocals and the drum. Uh, what kind of drum? A drum set? A five-piece? No, if I'm not mistaken, this is a bauron, spelt like B-O-D-R-A with apostrophe H-N, but pronounced bauron. It's Irish, so don't ask. Well, it's how things more translate. specifically, Gaelic, of it's course. Gaelic, which nothing looks like nothing it sounds. Yeah, well, we, we did Aoife O'Donovan. Aoife apparently is A-O-I-F-E, because yeah, yeah. there needs to be three vowels. Anyway, it's basically just a frame drum. Skin on top, completely open on the bottom, but the whole thing sits on your knee and is turned vertically, so your left hand actually goes in the underside mm -hmm. and kind of holds the skin, or rather mutes it to cut out the ringing, which makes it sound very, very flat, because that's the goal in this case. And then your right hand, you strike the drum, with a tipper, which is essentially your drumstick, but here you hold it more like a baton in the center because both sides of the stick are meant to strike the drum, so you actually engage in this tipping motion forward and back. It takes quite a bit of finesse. But yeah, but at this point, you know, you're basically convinced from all the, you know, the, uh, if you're not familiar, this is obviously for, like, non-flogging Molly fans, because yeah. otherwise the last two minutes of, of me yammering on is a waste of time. Right. But for everyone else who's just like, I never really got into Celtic music before, and maybe this is their first experience, then, yeah, it's, it's, it's got all the necessary parts. Yeah, I think, uh, for, as far as the first track goes, also, this is, it's not unlike them to do this style of a song. Now, all the instrumentation that Steve described, it very much is a journeyman song, which they've done plenty of times. But yes, once King's vocals come in, and his voice more or less hasn't aged a day, which is very impressive. You know, he doesn't do as much belty screaming as he used to do. He has his moments, but he does tend to stay a little more melodic or spoken now, but still has that same crisp, kind of um, gravelly... Irishman kind of voice, you know. See, I don't know him personally, so I don't want to say like there's any level of hamming it up per se, but I do think, based on just some of the tracks on this album, that he makes a conscious effort to go back and forth uh, between how much of his brogue he likes to infuse in his sure. music. He's been in America, obviously, for very long. I don't know exactly how long, since the 90s at least. So, you know, sometimes he just kind of 
uh, you leave the Irish a little bit at the door, you leave the Celtic influence, and then he goes more towards something hard rock, he purposely contorts his voice. And sometimes, honestly, you can't even tell in uh, vocalists who are from Ireland. They've never been over here in America. Sometimes I'm like, I can't quite tell the second they make the shift to singing whether they actually have a brogue or not. But in his case, this first track, it's in unmistakable. Yeah. I mean, you hear it just in the the R itself. Dear, like it almost like he's adding an N that ends in this this well, obviously it does end in an R, but he's like, he, he, he embellishes that. Dear Majesty, I kneel at your feet. I do a horrible accent, but it's these kinds of things. If you just break them down, that's what he, I think, over-exaggerates here. Well, I would say also um, when you're singing a certain song a certain way, considering this is obviously more traditional sounding than other stuff we'll get on the record a little later, he's, I think, leaning into it more than playing it up. Essentially, if you're playing a song that feels Irish, you're, the Irish in you may come out sort of the same way you go home from wherever you're from, and you may not speak with an accent when you're in America, but once you're amongst your family, your accent kind of comes out again. Oh. And I would say maybe the instrumentation and the style of the song is bringing his accent more to the forefront. Me coming back to New York after college... And also doing this podcast, which I think changes the way you speak a little bit. Me? Yeah, no, everyone. Oh. Everyone. I think just having, like, any kind of thing where you're, you're like, you know, me media broadcasters, then they, they're kind of required to speak a certain way, and if it doesn't even, it may happen subconsciously, if even. Oh, yeah, I know that so, I speak, if he, I, I attempt to speak more clearly here than I do in everyday conversation. Exactly. Yeah, for sure. Um, and so I think it's in that vein that he's doing that. Precisely. He's, he's writing a lot of, you know, music in that vein, so he, he wants to sound the part, you know, even when he, obviously, born in Dublin, he is the part. Something also that's very obvious from the start of this track is how well everything's mixed. You don't really lose any instrumentation here. I actually want to... I've been quiet, and I want to actually complain about the mixing a little bit. And it's primarily because... The vocals and the string work, I feel like it's a little bit drowned out from time to time by the rhythm section, specifically the drum work, but it, it kind of detracts from the overall softness that you're getting with the violin work, that you're getting with the vocals, because he's, like you said, he's not really belting it in this case, it's more conversational. So when the rhythm starts stepping in heavily, I'm... I'm actually losing a little bit of his inflection. I'm losing a little bit of the violin's inflection, and it's a, it, it's hurting it a little bit for me. Mm, I can't say I had a mixing problem in this particular yeah. track, mainly because the Bauron is really not an overbearing instrument. Don't get me wrong; it is it is loud for its simplicity. Like I, I'm surprised the the uh, the space that it fills in a room, uh, and it really you know, almost did have me thinking for a minute, like, it sounds like he's got a kick drum on his knee, you know, something that is really massive. But it's just the instrument has a big punch. But I don't think it's overbearing. I, I could hear every Not overbearing, word. just a little bit forceful. And it's not just the drums, it's the rhythm section in general that was a bit of an issue for me. But it was best showcased by the drum work. Well, considering this is one of the lyrics that I actually had to uh, transcribe, uh, because uh, we didn't find all the lyrics online. I guess it's because this is a very, very new album. Nevertheless, I was able to t transcribe this particular track with absolutely no problem. So, if, if there is a test just for, you know, the mixing, I think that was a, a decent text. Oh, it wasn't overbearing. It wasn't a particularly big thing, but when... 
when Matt specifically brought up the mixing level, that was an issue for me. But it I, was a model. But I didn't have that issue, nor did I even sense well, that. Well, that's why I have the counterpoint in. But, and that's fine, but I would <laughs> All say... All right, well, we're, having, we're having conversations, you know, so far on how Irish it is, you know, silly things like that, and also the mixing. I guess it really doesn't get down to the song itself. It's to that subject, uh, which we should probably speak on at the moment. And I, I think I would like to confront you uh, with this, Matt, considering you are most... I guess versed with flogging Molly, where do you rank this in the flogging Molly thing? Which is another faux pas. Actually, we shouldn't even have be having that discussion yet. We could just rate the song for the song. But I do want to know genuinely where do you feel it is in that five album lineup? I mean, so that's a tough question to answer here with this song specifically because most songs that lean towards the traditional are designed to sound like other songs. That's the point of putting together a traditional song. In fact, they tend to pull from previous melodies and incorporate them. So that that is the bar that they set out to achieve and then once they achieve that, where does one go from there? Or is that the the minimum bar you acquire which in some way uh, I would correct s- me if I'm wrong validates your your uh, your spiel, your opening spiel. I would say that it doesn't validated. I would say that when they don't build on a traditional song and they design something to just sound traditional, it's bare bones with intent. Um, That doesn't necessarily forgive things that may seem a little bare, but it definitely explains it. Um, I would say that typically they start with something like this and build on it. So as an intro track, it makes sense to be in this vein and to kind of try and grow from there. Well, that's one of the reasons why I did feel the need to, I guess, introduce every instrument. Because I, I enjoy all of these constituent parts. I really, really do. The violin is one of my favorite, favorite elements here. I think Bridget Regan is extremely talented. I'm Like I said, 60% of that Celtic influences, I think, wrapped up in uh, the violin there, despite the fact that the violin doesn't like necessarily stick around throughout all the verses. Uh, like, for instance, behind his vocals, um, eh, like the accordion kind of just supplements it, just as the accordion supplemented the violin, which, remember, was doing the melody before yeah. we even heard the melody. But it was like, again, hamming it up a little bit. And what I mean by that, of course, is it's just going a little bit further toward the genre. It links you closer to the Celtic folk, as would be heard, let's say, 100 plus years ago, you know? Mm-hmm. Something very, very traditional, whereas the melody itself, meh, you can you can move it around a little bit genre-wise. There is, of course, the brogue, but that's not the whole entire story. I do like whenever the violin returns, it's just those are the kind of things that I wish I had a little bit more of here in an opening track. You know, it's a jig, but it doesn't it doesn't have quite a lot of pep yet. It's still a little bit relaxed, uh, because of course the lyrics are one of almost like pain, fealty, but you know, kind of a snide fealty, if that makes any sense. Dear Majesty, I kneel at your feet, though my heart, it tells me, I am wrong. For I am my own man, and these are my needs, and without them your sovereign would be lost. I remember the day I earned my first pay, belittled and ground to a halt. I rose with the flame from my father's remains I buried when I was a pup. It, it's like the whole life story here, mm-hmm. as if you were kneeling before a, a king, which is, you know, quite a, it's an act of, like, submission almost, but also, like, humility and all of that stuff. You, you get this from the music as well, because it's not a, it's not like, let's, a, let's dance kind of jig. It just feels like I am a humble person and this is my story. Yeah, and and I think that's where I pulled the journeyman's quality from, is that the the kind of narrative quality of this track. I mean, I understand the the lack of pep uh, here, because it's definitely not as peppy as other tracks come later, but I think, again, to lean into the album and to start, 
it's a good way to begin the record. But then there is the little snide uh, quality, and that is, of course, the fact that I don't think he respects the sovereign, and that's the no. that's where you get the the chorus later. I believe the lyric I couldn't quite hear, but I think here we are now. Here we are now. The devil has spoken. He's not very bright. So he just what said the sovereign before, and now the sovereign is the devil. Going a little bit further uh, later on, dear Constantine, come make we believe. I think in your Lord I have chose to ignore. For mine is the year I now listen to hear, so I'll taunt every tyrant with a fault. So he just came right back at his, er, the act of submission is now one of, I am, I am standing on my own two feet. He was kneeling, now he's standing, and that's kind of the, that, that is the middle finger on the cover. Essentially an act of defiance, yeah. yeah. It works story-wise to, I think, set us up to the idea of what the album is going to be, and to also add um, some additional meaning to it, but... I'm not sure at this point if I'm going to receive this uh, this this track positively or negatively. Just on the first listen, just taking the track as a whole by itself. Because while it is well done for what it is, it's also something I am immensely familiar with. I mean, it's, it's traditional. So it's hard to say if that's a positive or negative at this point. Yeah, I, again, what, what I had said earlier, though, is that traditional tracks are by design created to be a little ubiquitous only because they're designed to get you singing along or invested. And that's kind of the nature of And a lot of traditional songs borrow from others. So I hear what you're saying. I'm not necessarily uh, agreeing or disagreeing. I'm just saying that's kind of the de- this by design for this track. Yeah, that's why I just wanted to set up, you know, all of those discussions. If you right. want to rate it on the criteria of, you know, just it filling out its genre purpose as you see it, or maybe as they see it, then maybe you can just leave it as, hey, these are all talented musicians, uh, and they all know their craft. But it's just a two-minute uh, plus song. It's really not that long. We don't go into any giant instrumentals. It's yeah. just the verse, verse, chorus, verse, chorus, uh, eh, maybe one more verse and chorus. I'm not sure. Maybe less than that. I think it's just two verses, two choruses. Anyway, track two, The Hand of John L. Sullivan. We get a little bit deeper into what they do, but another side of them, of course. The biggest difference here is that it's no longer a jig. It's more your typical Celtic punk. Um, Because I think that that was a wider or at least more universally enjoyed genre, I think, in the 90s, even when everyone wasn't necessarily into, like, traditional Celtic music, well, if you put it in punk, then it's all fair game. (laughs) I mean, yeah, I think that they have leanings towards heavy rock, punk, a variety of rock genres that blend with Celtic very well. This song, of course, is already a bit faster paced than the previous. I mean, anything would be faster paced than the previous. Well, mainly because we ditched the Bowron in favor of this time. An actual drum set, yeah. Um, And you know, it kicks up the pace a bit, but that said, it's still not unfamiliar if you're familiar with this genre of music. Because once you're talking about the Celtic punk, the whole reason, I mean, obviously you have the full drum set, and then it's that every time we've looked at a punk band, I say the same thing. You know, the emphasis on the end. One and, two and, three and, four and. And that's basically the, that's basically the feel of this uh track front to back. The the one thing I did really, really like about it, even though it steps away from tradition, of course, is the fact, well, we ditched the upright bass in favor of a bass, an electric bass, and I do kind of like that little bounce that the electric bass has. It kind of goes hand in hand with the, with the hi-hat, just a little counterpoint there. But that actually brings us to what Celtic punk kind of portrays, because it doesn't quite do punk. There's... The one thing I, I I want to refrain from really describing it that way because it doesn't have that twinge that punk seems to just ubiquitously have of 
a frowny face at the end of the day. There is a lot of happiness going on right here. There's a lot of uplifting, mm-hmm. which is something that's more indicative yeah, but, of a ska idea. But, but, I don't yeah, think that was ever as about, true as you think. Well, yeah, because think about punk in the last... You can't really say that anymore, because punk in the last 10 to 15 years hasn't really leaned that way in a while. Most of the major bands labeled as some form of punk. If you're talking about true punk of the past, then yes. That's no, exactly not, what I'm speaking see, of. See, I disagree. With, I don't know. I, this is just the encapsulation of, of punk as this dour genre that's not nearly what, you know, some of the spurred, you know, alt-rock bands did in the 90s. Punk, actually, I mean, if you're just going to speak about the, the Ramones, let's say, they're extremely uplifting from track to track. I don't feel any, uh, even if you look in the lyrics, you're sure you'll find stuff. I'm but not like, talking lyrically. I'm the talking... The sound, the feel. The, the sound, the, it's, mm, there's always been a little bit of a twinge to me. And I, I do, I know the Ramones. There's always been a little bit of a twinge, a little bit of a, a slight souring, even in the most uplifting tracks that was identifiably punk for me. Well, you'll at least get no argument that in this particular track, uh, I think we all feel a kind of resounding sense of happiness. Yes. Um, you may be tough, but you'll never knock him down. He's a towering god, but not our sacred cow. He may be caught, but never on the ropes. He is a diamond cut for every poor man's hope. He was always glad to meet you. He's the champion of the people, the first and last name ever to be spoke. And that man, I guess, is... John L. Sullivan. And that's the chorus. I am the man, the man with the plan. <laughs> uh, to shake the hand of John L. Sullivan. Um, I, I See, the, the, I have some issues here, I guess, in terms of the fact that we did move away. Like, I may like certain elements. I like the electric bass and whatnot. But eh, it, 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 it shed itself from some of the uniqueness, I think, by moving from track one of true Irish jig into this. I understand it's just as easily flogging Molly. You get no arguments from me there. Um, but it, it 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 loses the certain something, the je ne sais quoi. I don't know. I mean, I would argue, though, that the uniqueness is not completely gone. I mean, for, for one thing, sonically, vocally, they're doing something a little different. During the verses, the remainder of the band that does the backups, you're doing your typical onomatopoeia over the verse, the ooze, if you will. Uh, O's. <laughs> O's, ooze. But, but the interesting thing is that the way they, they don't quite line up evenly with the verse, so they don't blend perfectly, so it's not harmonizing. So it throws it off a little bit. I, I'm not quite sure how I feel about it, but it is definitely something that stood out. But it wouldn't actually call them typical because of the nature of how they're being used. They're not quite on key. They're not, like you said, meshing up quite with the rhythm or nor harmonizing nor working with the melody or anything like that. They are a, a bit of a sonic experience. I would call it a positive as far as texture is concerned, though they're a little bit on the jarring side. I is like it, them for that. They're in key. I think the reason they just sound a little odd is, number one, what Matt brought up, the fact that you'd normally find them in the chorus, not necessarily in the verse. The second reason is because of the halted nature of it. You don't quite know what you're going to get at first. So you hear the, the verses, you know, his melody, and then in the background, oh, oh. Like there's that like wh- there's that moment being like what was that what did I just hear really am I gonna get that kind of thing and I see I don't know I I almost want to land where Matt is where it's like that didn't really affect me for or against in the broad well maybe Matt I guess you did like it because it, you normally it. find it in the chorus you're glad to see it in the verse I liked it sonically I thought it provided a different experience it was a little distracting from the verse well I'm gonna uh, I guess push that a little further down the line because of course. We get it later on as well, but I want to I want to first get through the chorus because the chorus is something that I need to chime in. I'm not quite a fan of. Um, 
I am the man with the plan to shake the hand of John L. Sullivan. A fighter till the end, legend he will be. If any man should ask, if any man could carry, I am the man with the plan to shake the hand of John L. Sullivan. I had a little bit of a problem with this, which I can't quite sugarcoat in in the, you know, sure it did the job but did nothing for me kind of thing. I, I don't know if it was really written that well. Like, it starts off okay, uh, the backing vocals come in with the, I'm the man with the plan, right? And then just him to shake the hand of John L. Sullivan. Especially in the end there, when he goes higher, it can be kind of nice, John L. Sullivan, right? But then... Uh, the musicality kind of tapers off, especially with the final line, I am the man with the plan to shake the hand of John O'Sullivan. Like, when he goes down, there's there's something about the name that didn't feel like it flowed really well, or that he was kind of cramming it in there. Like, maybe it could have been better to a different melody, or rather that this melody could have sounded better to a different name. I know that's kind of minor, but that was just one little issue I had with this chorus. It sounded a little bit hollow. But now, of course, later, after the second chorus, we have the instrumental hook that follows. And this was quite weird, because we get what you want to almost call a slowdown. It's not really a slowdown. The tempo does not change. This is at a minute and 48 seconds. We just changed the time signature here. And that was interesting. I did not expect to get that in the middle of this punk track. We kind of, we, we almost want to turn it into a jig, but it's a slower jig. It turns, it's not really a jig at all, because it goes down from like 4-4, four, four, we go to 6-4, and so from this, you know, 4-4 four, four emphasis on the and thing, 1 and 2 and 3 and 4 and 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 1, 2, 3, there's almost like a waltz all of a sudden. And that was a little bit odd, but again, we don't really change the tempo. It was just, it was interesting to see some variety, but the appeal I recognized was just kind of locked in the fact that it sounded more relaxed. And it was still a little bit early on this album for me to get like, a, ah, we need to we need to take down the energy, you know? And it was, that was a little bit strange. But the build back up, which is what I've been building toward this entire time, was equally odd. And because, of course, it brings back that little oh, 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 oh. First, the guitar, just the electric guitar, gently, you know, introduces us with this dun 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 I think we're already back in 4-4 now, but we actually haven't gone back into the verse-chorus thing. Um, and then over the dun 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 only thing happening, then you get the backing vocalists again doing the same thing. Oh. Oh. I don't know, it was just bizarre to me. I don't really have anything... I don't have any positives or negatives. I just thought it was a little bit strange considering that this is like the kind of thing you would do after you have delivered a huge amount of content, right? And now you need to sort of undo that in a dramatic fashion. But the, the minutes, the timestamp, like the in my head, the album almost just began. Well, yeah, I'd say that that kind of structure would fly better in a live setting. I think that midpoint slowdown is just the whole track as a whole, I'd say, is designed for a live setting. Which... But even then, a live setting late in the show. Oh, yeah, well, the way also, I visualize well, it. Well, sure, and but typically you don't play an album in order at a show either. So no, but you plan for a different kind of arc, which you would still try to get at in a right. show. Right, and so if this song came later in the show, I think it would work just fine. That said, I think that we're skipping over some of the interesting instrumentation that comes in the midpoint as well. Like, the fact that the violin here is peppered throughout, but it really gets interesting when it's paired closely with the flute, almost like they're dueling each other. Um, the, the flute work here is sparse and definitely not as common as it is later on the album, but there's definitely enough of it here to stand out, but definitely not enough to really... Uh, change the dynamics of the track. But it's more like more the than not, the flute, I think it's a tin whistle. Uh, um, tin whistle, yeah. It, it's um, used in 
pairing with other instruments. Yeah. Very often you'll get the violin and the tin whistle playing at the same exact time. And just like I said about the violin and the accordion, I think that's a really nice pair. It's mm -hmm. just, was as long as they're doubling, they're playing in complete unison, then it, it, it's very, very nice. It's that, pleasing to the ear. And that was here before that midpoint slowdown. And then it comes back a little bit in the outro, but definitely there wasn't enough of it in the track. I would have liked to have heard it throughout the track as a whole. One thing I did find curious was that while the introduction had a very specific feel that was was definitely built upon by the verse work. The fact that they kept going back to it as a post-chorus transitional piece uh, did a lot to tie the kind of places that the chorus was going to, which was was a little bit muddled, not just by the, the lead-in, the way uh, the... OOOs kind of led out of the verse into the chorus. It was it was a weird transitional dynamic between the two because it didn't feel like a whole lot was actually changing from the the instrumental sections to the verses to the choruses. It's just the but formula. they they felt like they were different entities. So having that call back to the intro didn't do a lot to keep everything together without becoming stale. But I felt like without those brief little like pick me up peppy parts in between i felt like the 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 heavy use of the the punk theme of the drum and bass section would have definitely worn on me so it was nice getting a little bit of energy infusing that wasn't just high energy lots of let's go forward going on of the verses and choruses it did keep everything fresh but that said Aside from the odd bridge, which I definitely was a little bit towards the favorable side when taking in the vacuum, though the lead into that bridge, yeah, was a little bit on the abrupt side. Uh, it was it was a very tried and true formula. Well, that's I think what that's I'm what getting I, at. Like, even when you're describing yeah. the Tin Whistle Violin pair up, which I admit I really, really like sonically, I think that that's, again, it's part of the thing that even they, if we're in kind of almost a different genre right now, sort of did that in the last track as well. You get the precursor to the melody. If you listen close, of course, that's kind of what the vocals are doing later. You get the Tin Whistle Violin right before the verse even begins, and then you hear it again in his vocals, although he's a little bit looser with it. Um and they're a little bit more Irish with it. And then, of course, you get that return. You get the tin whistle and the violin every single time after uh, a chorus. It's just, hey, I like it, but I also, it, it, it's, it's, there's so much potential here. And I, I wanted more, I guess, as of track two. It's still f their formula. I don't want to say formulaic because it implies other things, but yeah. it's their formula to a T. So at least in terms of everything you said about consistency, sure. Track three, Welcome to Adamstown. Um, hmm, hmm, hmm. this is interesting because we're kind of, I guess, hopping over to another little area there. This is obviously what we uh, preview in the beginning about there being a dose of ska. And I don't know if, if one of you, perhaps a listener, can say whether there was a ska in a very specific track um, on any previous Flogging Molly album. But the funny thing here is that to me, it was only ska the first couple times because there's something about the quality of these trumpets the second we get them after like four bars of a fairly basic, you know, guitar intro, then you get the trumpets, and, and there's something in it. I, I feel like there was a, a little bit of a lip shake, maybe, that really rings true of that mariachi band feel. I we've, think, we've gotten, you know, scattered places throughout what we've done. I think at. that comes later, towards the end of the track, when the guitar is really strummy, mixed with the horns at the same time, because the horns kind of step out in the first couple times they come in, but then yeah. they're more blended at the end of the track. Right. I think that sounds definitely strongly more mariachi. I will go back on saying that it sounds ska, because I really don't. Upon 
subsequent listens, I'd say it's very easy for the cliche of ska to lend towards a trumpet. Yeah, the second you hear the instrument, that's what you want to think and, of, and of course, that's and not especially true. because ska and punk are very close to each other as far as energy. But I don't you know really it think it feels that way. It's having heard the punk track in like just the last track yeah. was more punk inspired, and ska is like punk mixed with that instrument, yeah. and then you get it. But of course, the punk is absent here, yeah. so I'm crossing wires. And that's why I think, I think we all did that. I don't think it's completely absent. And I think that the ska, while illusionary, does something. The horns themselves add a bit of, of sway to it that could be ska, could be punk, and would be present in both types of music. And that sway really shows up in in the chorus itself and it's really the 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 way pronunciation and syllable placement occur it's a slight slowdown a slight de-emphasis towards the end of the chorus phrase work that i see in punk i see in ska and i think is just from that initial horn burst that I'm making that sort of connection from one to the other and that I have it on my mind to have that sort of a sway going on. I think, yeah, but as I became more familiar with the track, that dissipated a bit. But for sure, something that this track does better than the previous track, I think, is stays... Uh, it has a better sense of flow, but that's also sort of a negative in the same way because the previous track, though it halted and stilted at certain points, it gave for an interesting flow of track. Whereas here, more or less, it, it, the track becomes a little less memorable because the horns become the memorable thing, the mariachi guitar becomes the memorable thing, but the rest of the content less so. Okay, that's not a bad way to boil it down. I think in terms of... Yeah, the disparity, like, I think, I'm inclined to disagree just with the first part of what you said, because this, of course, was a less memorable track to me, kind of just on the face of it. I don't want to, I won't deny that maybe one of those reasons is because they shocked me with something. But then again, you could say that the horns here are kind of just like what the dramatic time signature change was around the bridge of the last track. Right. So I guess those are analogous, in which case you still have kind of a... I don't know if I felt as much toward this track, even as much as I felt toward um, uh, Hand of John L. Sullivan. I don't... Uh, the reason why, I think, may actually be because here, if you just set the horns aside, I think this may be lacking a genre for me. Not detecting as much of the Celtic thing here. Not detecting as much of the punk thing here. Maybe John hears it, don't know. Nevertheless, I, I, I think, think this is just a kind of a pop rock track. Like, I really couldn't find much of a place to it. Not that genre should be, like, the only argument we're having, but it's kind of very basic in the verses of sort of fast-paced acoustic strum. One iena, two iena, three iena, four iena, and just guitar keeps on doing that. And then, of course, you get the verse melody. Read the Sunday papers. One iena, two, and... that that. Ah, uh, there's just something a little bit childish about that writing, and I think that's one of the main reasons. When your melody does not sell it for me and never have any character to it, that was where my problem occurred. That's it. Actually, showcases the the sort of fence writing I've been doing for the first three tracks now, where you could say it has a very solid flow, but on the other hand, if you want to be more critical, you go negative and say it's it's really steady well, yeah. and it's very repetitive. It's like, I don't know where to go with it and I don't want to commit. And I think that might actually be a, a problem I'm having just in general with this stuff. I don't want to commit to a positive or a negative on this. Because while 
some of the changes that are going on, like getting a little bit more pep in one hand and then a little bit of less pep on the other hand. So horns, cool. Horns, they, they wake you up. And unlike Steve, I think I am identifying this track as cool, horns. And then I don't know I'm what else to say. I, well, I'm like, on the same things, page, but I think that... But they I do am, one thing. <laughs> well, but they do two things. They yeah, just two, do very we'll get, different we'll things. We'll get that later thing later. Well, but I think <laughs> the, the, the not wanting to commit one way or the other, is that the fault of the music or your interpretation of it? Well, it's. I'm trying to... I'm just trying to further elaborate. I'm trying to find enough positives to go positive, enough negatives to go negative, and I... I'm finding it to be a really big balancing act. Not that one is actually knocking out the other and Mm -hmm. that they're lining up to weigh the same. But those positives are staying by themselves and those negatives are staying by themselves. And it's weird to be able to say, on the one hand, the horns do a lot to actually give me some energy and some step here that I was kind of missing in the previous track. On the other hand, they're not there for enough of the track for me to lose that step. On the one hand, I'm enjoying the vocals and I'm enjoying that that pacing that I was finding in the chorus. On the other hand, the pacing of the verse work is leaving me scratching my head and in spite of its bopping nature, I'm not getting into it. Let's take that point and run with it because, whoa, this is going to be... Uh, uh, if this were a track, of course, that we were doing before uh, we did lyrics, I really don't know if I could find a saving grace for it. It may perhaps only one, that is the later thing. Nevertheless, we should be looking at lyrics here, and I think the reason for that little split is pretty self-obvious. Uh, this track is called Welcome to Adamstown. Adamstown doesn't sound like anything. I don't know if there's a, a uh, basis for this town or if they just uh, almost like any town USA. I don't know exactly what they're doing here. Nevertheless, look at those opening lyrics. Read the Sunday papers. There's nothing else to do. Go wrap yourself a sandwich while you're there. I'll have one too. Run around a corner where it used to be a shop. I may have missed this part here, because again, this is a transcription. Uh, now they're into junking, how much do you want, this is what we've got. Welcome to Adamstown, we're still looking for what we found. Yeah, welcome to Adamstown, something, it's a ghost town. Uh, Alright, if this is just like any town in America or something like that, it, it honestly sounds like something that we sort of discussed last week in terms of uh, the origin of last week's artist, uh, Jalen, sort of being from the Rust Belt. It sounds like a town that used to have something going for it. Maybe not even, I don't know, there's not really a lot about industry here. A little bit later it, it, it gets into something about, you know, they tore it all apart, work is on the pipeline, train is on the wrong line. I do think it is, at least using the analogy of an empty... An empty town that used to have something for it. People used to like it. People used to want to, you know, they, 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 you always knew where everything was. And now it's just kind of gutted. Or rather, people are trying to defend the town in the ways through the lens of what the town was rather than what it is, which doesn't sound like it's all that great a place currently. Uh, the bridge later on is things are not all as they seem. This rundown suburban dream. The tiger may have lost its roar. We will never lose our soul. Maybe someday we'll appear. Uh, I have my doubts we'll make it here. Please make it here. It's just a veneer. The whole entire track is just a veneer for this sad little town, um, which again, may be just metaphorical for other issues and things we feel we should leave behind. Eh, let's leave that at the side. Let's just assume right now it's the town, in which case all those back and forths that John just experienced are basically explained by the fact that this is just a happy-go-lucky and maybe perhaps even what I 
said earlier, bland, boring pop track because that's exactly what the town is. There's nothing going for it. And it, it will appease the people who are in denial. Great artistic representation, but man, does that ask a lot of me considering my focus on music and considering that that's generally what I try to offer the table more so than lyrics here, but hey. I think for me where the track finds its strength is kind of in the same places where Steve is quick to write it off as pop. Um, because I hear more of an old school rock and roll feel. And honestly, if we look at Elton John, Billy Joel, the, the of that era of maybe the late 80s, early 90s, and their rock and roll, that would fall into pop by now standards. And I think that this is by referencing a bygone time for a place is also referencing a bygone Error of music that we know uh, Dave King is influenced you by. You may have that down as far as the instrumentation goes, but I don't think that the I don't think it's there in the musicality. I think it'd be undervaluing those artists because of specific things uh, that I just really took issue with in this song. Um, apart from the later thing, but anyway, the verse verse two, for instance, you know, what do we add in verse two? We just add clapping in the background. Wonderful layer. Uh, next thing, the, the sort of post-chorus uh, here, take the money and run. That was interesting, but of course it brings all the, the vocalists together. You get kind of a uh, rousing effect there, but it was very, very brief, and then it just ditches that in favor of the bridge. Now, I already read the bridge's lyrics. The only thing it does here, after a track that was almost entirely in C major, is we switch to F major. Oh, your four chord, right? And how does this wrap itself up? Well, by first going four, one, four, one, ends on a five. You could, can't imagine where they're going to go to from here. Back to one. So from a chordal standpoint, there was just no meat on the bones. And then, of course, the last thing, uh, and this is the thing that I like that I dare say it's not going to save the track for me, but I do really, really like this, uh, this element. The post bridge, I guess, and it's an instrumental that just was born out of the bridge itself. And that is, of course, after we go back to one, well, we don't go back to the one of either a verse nor a chorus. We go into this thing, this this instrumental, a guitar just kind of going C, 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 A, 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 G, 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 F, 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 you know, kind of just going down. I'm not singing this properly, but anyway, it's just major scale work. And there's really no tension in this to build to a reprise. It felt hollow by itself, but you do get one thing, and this was the one thing with a lot of energy. The thing that actually reflects his vocals, his vocal melody during the chorus, Welcome to Adam's Town, and you get that in the mariachi trumpets. And this time, I'm not overselling the mariachi aspect. Here you feel the full lip shake in, in this uh, reprise. And that was truly unexpected because, uh, well, not just for this album, but from what I know for the band, it was unexpected for the song, considering I, I thought the trumpets just were going to stay at their kind of ska-ish thing. But you get a nice... Uh, a nice little instrumental there. It was it was it was brief, but I really liked it. Before one final, uh, take the money and run thing with the mariachi trumpets actually overhead, and that was a really nice closeout. Uh, to run with Matt's imagery to build upon it, that actually would work within the theme work that he was building, that he was talking about, because that could be just a glimpse of its previous grandeur, of its previous importance. Even the fact that it is an element that is merely a, a burst of energy for this this town for Adams town but being used differently being used as a beautiful powerful element of the track could be what would happen to that element over time that it's merely just a burst of energy instead of the the entire story previously it could be it could be the imagery of 
of what it was back in the heyday, of what it was to throw a number on it, uh, of the 50s, of when it was a roaring town, when it was full of that industry you're looking for, or that that power. Maybe it's that last gasp of money being drawn out of the town that is no longer there. It's no longer profitable to be cutting down trees or coal mining or whatever the industry was. So that money being pulled out of it is that last gasp of what it was economically, I'm going with it. Let me let me finish it up because I know you're ready. I can see your lips moving. <laughs> so maybe that money being drawn out of it was what happened to the mariachi band. What happened to the horns and that they just became a, the the refrain. I'm working with the imagery. Uh, I'm working with the imagery, but I like it. Doing. I think it works. What about the rest of the music though? Do you really think that the rest of the instrumentation is that heavy-handed in 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 callbacks to? That era? No, of no, rock? I think the callbacks are in the horns themselves. It's just in the horns. They are the ghost of the past. Which are not the go- yeah, which we are gotta... not barely there. They are They are an element. Yeah, and they are a fairly consistent element. You know, this track's not that long, and they come in three or four times over the course of a three minute track, bookending the choruses, I think. So but the, but the space in between is intolerable for me for some reason. I mean I I'm love gonna the jump, horns when they're there. I'm gonna jump on the fence of positivity for imagery, because you convinced me, Matt. <laughs> no, I'm I, not think, there. I think I'm there. I did the convincing for you. No, Matt did more. Oh. I'm gonna give Matt the credit. Oh jeez. Steve, if you would like I your logic do... complaint, you could send your email to matt.storm at crashchords.com. <laughs> He's just appeasing me now. <laughs> but I'm still there with you on the music. It's I'm not going to be committing to it musically. It's still not there for me. Well, so I'm I'm still on the fence, but I'm decisively on one to the other side. All right. Well, again, I, I, I may have squinted to find this theme, and I do genuinely believe it's there, but I would not be inspired to find one um, because of the music precisely. So, hey, I'm a bit of a low point to track three, but Matt is the advocate here, and he's got more to say, I'm sure, as we get to track four, Reptiles, parenthesis, We Woke Up. Now, I actually quite liked this intro. This was... That I, I just need to describe what I like so much just about the first, you know, 10 seconds of the track because nothing has actually br- drawn me in this early on this album yet. Um, the guitar strumming pattern in tandem with the Bowron, I, I think was a really neat pair. But of course, it's the strumming pattern that really gets me here. I mean, normally I say that, I'm like, all right, well, where, what else? What is it doing that is special before we're just playing in 16th notes? And that was a little bit tiring. This is kind of interesting just because of the accent on the uh, 16th note right before the beat. So it's kind of a little bit of a one E and up, E and, one E and up, E and, a little emphasis right there. Um, kind of a cool pattern of syncopation. I, it sounds better when you hear it, of course, but he's also very free with it. It, you know, it feels human, not just, he doesn't just do that. Sometimes he kind of slurs the later parts, but it's mainly that emphasis on the 16th note right before the beat. Also, the Bowron was joining in right on that. And I just, just those two instruments as a pair, it felt, it, it, it was it was quite nice. I, I don't want to get into anything else yet. No, no lyrics quite yet. It created a rumbling effect. It, it a, a rumbling effect that also promoted travel. And that was, that mm-hmm. was some surprising imagery for being so quiet and sort of like downplayed to to really have movement right away with something that wasn't a heavy paced beat work. I mean that's not uncommon for anything that lends from folk. It reminded me of a, a Wanderer's song, which we've gotten plenty of times before in a similar vein of genre. Even though it's very early on, the way the guitar kind of rolls definitely gives that momentum. That kind of walking. That's a much better way to do it than the one ease. Yeah. 
But adding that to that second layer of guitar work that shows up just briefly, just bursting, didn't scream folk to me. It screamed country. And it was... I know that in a lot of ways, people, when they hear me say country, think it's a dirty word. This is actually a positive, because if you're talking about a Wanderer song, country does it beautifully. Well, yeah, and you have to think about, you know, country and folk are diverging paths, but they all start from, they both start from the same point. And so there are going to be similarities when parallel to each other. And I don't think it's that unreasonable to say that, because Foggy Molly's dipped into country influence before, because again, it all kind of comes from the same place. And that second guitar layer that shows up is a nice, brighter pitch that... I wanted a lot more of, but I wasn't upset that I wanted it more of. It's that little it's, wailing yeah. overhead. I absolutely adore that. That was actually third in my list. Skipped over number two, but nevertheless, it's there. So I want to, <laughs> yeah, that was obviously very satisfying. I'll just say that now. It, it felt very Decemberist for me. Perhaps just, it may even be one of the, my favorite things that I love about the Decemberists is their use of that particular tone. Um, so now I'll go back to the second thing, and that was the layer of reverb that's just kind of here and everything. You know, we really had that, like, in the last few tracks. And in this case it's not like a whitewash it's just a mist and it's actually very tasteful in this instance considering that the last few tracks sounded kind of flat i needed that textural variety um and of course that finally brings us into the lyrics well uh the vocals themselves i was okay with them i do feel that in some sense they robbed the intro of a little bit of potential like maybe you know he should have his emphasis should have been matching the music itself there's some, there felt like there was a disconnect there. Like, he was a little bit, his consonants were a little too sharp for the soothing nature of the music. Yeah, but I think also it's coming from a spoken uh, kind of style that he's doing here. And he speaks, his spoken moments in other records and my experience with Flogging Molly tend to have that sharpness. That's kind of just the way he talks. Of course he could play it up and, and round it a bit, but I think he was trying to come from a more natural place, so I'm not surprised it sounded like that. Well, he that. could do whatever he wants. He's a musician. Well, <laughs> this is what true. he did here. Well, I just, it was a little bit of a jarring moment for me. Maybe just because I was you know, completely laid down to sleep. It was such a soothing moment, and then all of a sudden he comes in with this, with, I'm actually reading the second verse here, young bloods are bleeding, and I don't know, it felt sharp for the sake of, it's, it was weird. Just a little bit weird. But what that did was actually kind of flip the track, like, severely from that country feel I got right away to folk. And not Irish folk, which was a surprise. It felt like old school Appalachian. It felt Americana. And I really enjoyed it because it felt like they were exploring a different side of their style while still keeping it connected to... Not just the previous work, but to to the overall like theme that they were building upon here, at least musically, it, it felt like it was a a callback in a lot of ways to maybe a separate origin point from what they were doing. That the first track was like the the penultimate origin of what Flogging Molly is. I don't know. I mean, maybe I think it's uh, I think you're overthinking it maybe a little bit. I think that for sure. That effect comes from the interplay that the violin takes here. The violin is pe is peppered throughout, but in a different way to link the other sounds together. I think that plus, once things kick up a little bit and it fills out a little more, we definitely get a better sense of that folk feel. Yeah, and one of you know there are some instruments that kind of start catching up to his speed in in some sense. Like the guitar starts playing more emphatically with these mm -hmm. little verse phrase interludes. So in between, you know the the first verse and the second verse, um, I'll just read it. Nobody's talking, so 
the graves they rose up, and walked away. What's the point in this? Futile. Like reptiles will all soon be dust someday, someday. And then you get that nice emphatic guitar interlude before, like all godless children, the young bloods are bleeding to find their way. Let's not mess with their future. Our past revolutions have somehow failed. So then, of course, here we get the chorus, and this is probably the more emphatic of the lot. It's actually not a super obvious chorus, though, because really not a lot has changed outside his melody. His melody is what you get. That's more emphatic. We woke up. We woke up. Yeah, we woke up. Um, and then, but, of course, you added the beat there, this pum, pum in the background. It, it, it's starting to, you know, become a grander track. I guess it was never meant to be as soft as I maybe wanted from the first few seconds, but anyway, you do. I mean, yeah, the, the tension definitely in the vocal delivery for the chorus, the we woke up, this, this right. cry out, um, which is, which also they are very much known for, these calls. We woke up. Yeah, <laughs> it, it, it's, you know, it's meant to energize, it's meant to reach out, and I felt it. I feel like... I see where Steve's coming from. I do like the lighter side of the earlier part of the track, but I don't feel like it was unnatural to go to that place. I think based on the lyrics and the progression of the vocals, it made sense to go in that direction. I think the vocals were just taking lead here where it felt like the vocals were kind of along for the ride with the instrumentation previously. Well, it's still not like it wasn't even though I enjoy the vocal delivery there, it still wasn't like a great chorus for me. I think what I'm still my, my favorite thing about this track is kind of what I liked about the last few tracks is the little instrumental interludes. Um, the guitar one from earlier, and then of course this little post-chorus ditty. Uh, it, it, it was kind of a cheerful ditty, ditty that followed the chorus in the violin, and I found it interesting that mixing-wise, this was so much louder uh, than everything else, and it was also kind of mixed to the left side, but it was really, really nice. And this was, I think, the thing that grabbed me even more so than the guitar, was this little violin ditty. And it comes back, well, every single time there's a chorus, then it usually follows that chorus. Uh, and a, a couple times, actually, it even intermingles with the chorus, so I enjoy that as well. Well, because it gives the violin a more playful feel in this track, I think, than it had yeah. previously. It's always playful and, and beautifully done, but I think here, for sure, the way it intermingled, like you're describing it, added a little more yeah. to it. I don't think that was until the final chorus, though. A apart from that, I don't know, there was a little bit of a, a, little bit of a long haul in this track to get there, because of the fact that I had been thrown in a few, maybe a few too many places. They did add uh, a couple of instruments. They added the banjo, I noticed, in this track, uh, in verse 2. And also in chorus 2, well, they add an extra beat. This sounded, I don't think it was the, the Bowron, I think it was just a kick drum, but it had more of an arena rock resonance. And there was something in there that was just, I don't know, it was It was a, a kick-up that they threw in the chorus that made it start leaning towards an anthemic idea. Yeah, 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 exactly. That was that was the big change from chorus 1 to chorus 2 that it became less a proclamation and more of a a carrion call. Well, it's because the lyrics later on are for once in this life let's just make these let's make these wrongs right and then seize the day. So can't get more of an anthemic idea than that. <laughs> I mean, but at least it's not being anthemic for the sake of being anthemic. It's It built to that based on the lyrics. Well, I feel like there was a little bit of, you know, that sensation where because of the early part of the track, I was lied to a little bit. Like, oh, you're really going to like this thing. You're really going to like it. But then, of course, we're going to do an anthemic track. It, it still ended up becoming that. Yeah, I guess. But I... it had more character, I'll admit, hands down than the last few tracks. Yeah, I think that maybe based on your own expectations, you were disappointed. But And I, I didn't interpret the track as that, even from the very beginning, which is why my expectations weren't po possibly as harsh as yours were. Okay, well, then... I guess that's all it comes down to. Track five, The Days We've Yet to Meet. 
Well. So the first thing you notice here very early on, because the instrumentation is pretty light in the beginning, is how differently Dave King is delivering his vocals here. More croonery here and less... I don't want to say character than previously, but it does feel like he's flatter here. Not knowing uh, their discography as well as you do, I, I you could have fooled me thought it was another vocalist. Right. But it's definitely Dave King, you say. Yeah. Yet there is um, uh, a duet later on. Don't know if that's him singing over himself or if there was another vocalist who did really step in for that. Well, I mean, the, um, other vocalists in the band have taken lead before, but I don't believe that's the case here. I believe it's it's uh, Dave throughout. Well, I'm going to be the first to chime in. Obviously, the verse you know begins after you get this accordion, violin, guitar ditty to, to really set us off. But then once you get that verse, I... I, I I gotta say that was not my favorite singing style of his. I know I'm a little bit of a naysayer at this point, but this kind of does twist around only because um, when I heard the vocals, I don't know, they lacked some kind of, they lacked something. It had, a, it didn't have any distinctive quality about it, and I, I wondered why, you know, he would start singing like that. But then later on in the chorus, when you hear that duet, whoever it is singing as a pair, one was definitely more expressive than the other. There was something about the one guy, again, it could be Dave King over Dave King. I have no idea. Nevertheless, it, I think actually that worked. Have one, almost like the, uh, the you know, the, the, the straight man comedy, you know, thing. One is always like a little bit crazier than the other person, the Abbott and Costello. So that's a, kind of what was going on here in the chorus. And I thought it worked. One is kind of toeing the line. One is kind of all over the place. But that animation that you get in the the second voice really showcases how conversationally sung the verses are. How just, it's not quite that level of matter of fact that would show off like attitude. But it is, it's, it's low-key melodic. This is a weird pairing for the kind of punkish feel I'm getting in the verses. The combination of the two is one screaming attitude. The verses really are musically trying to say attitude, but the lack of attitude, the almost, almost deadpan nature of the verses, lyrically and vocally, it's an odd combination of the two. It does, it does create some imagery, but I don't know how well it is hitting me emotionally. Yeah, this was a little bit a little bit flat all around. I think the vocals were kind of harboring most of the character of this piece, actually. Um, Matt? I mean, I made it pretty clear, uh, at least uh, my feelings on the vocals very early on. Instrumentally, it's... I think we're still rooted in folk and classic rock here. I've maybe heard a bit of rockabilly at one point. In the choruses, uh, definitely. Yeah, I, I see I that. I think that the bridge shift was very sudden. And uh, my problem here is in this track the, that instrumentally it felt almost a little inconsistent. But that said, based on the super genre that they're working within, it's not unheard of. And I feel like it's almost a little nitpicky also. I think that we would for sure not really get a sense of folk without the strings, but they are there and they do root us back in folk. I don't get an overwhelming sense of Celtic rock or or Irish rock here, uh, especially comparatively to previous tracks. It's well, not that it's, I need that. It's not yeah. that I need... All of C, this is where the conversation I feared that it would go because, of course, I guess... 
That's how some people may approach this band. That's why I said it, what I said up front, because I think some people are going to be like, that's, what, that's the only thing that I will judge this album by, you know, is how Celtic they are. And when they're not as Celtic, some people will really, really care about that. It's not that I necessarily care about that, it's that I care about distinctiveness. If they wanted to do a whole thing based off that mariachi, you know, <clears throat> sure, they could have done that. I actually felt it was underused. Um, here, it's that there's not as much being used, period. I mean, the, the instrumental at 2 minutes and 10 seconds, um, the drums were neat here. It's just kind of a film of drums. Uh, but not so much else. I kind of liked that film. A little bit of rim taps here and there. They added to the variety. So it's at the instrumental bridge region of this track that it starts to get interesting. And I guess in that in that sense, yeah, there's a consistency here. The consistency is always that the verses could use a little more. The choruses could use a little more. And in every place on these tracks, you could use more of the talented uh, the talented instrumentalists in more of a comping sense rather than just a hey chill until your part comes and then when that part comes you're gonna get about seven seconds which is kind of uh, what I made previously like the transitional pieces in between the verses and choruses specifically from course back into verse is a little bit more expressive musically and it works very well to actually draw us back into the different feels the different like layers that we're getting with the verses and the choruses because one is leading to the other but the lead back in can be a little bit rough considering you're going from like i said a little bit punkish into rockabilly it's like we're going backwards so they actually do a cool job of going even further backwards and feeling like they're hitting a folk level to go back into that punkish setting because when they first did it with the introduction into the first verse it works so they keep doing it yes repetition but at the same time it's good repetition it is good instrumentation interject it bring it into the verses don't just use it as a way to make things work well together use it as a way to be expressive it, i think that's what i think that's what steve and i are both missing yeah more more less spotlighting more more content i i think that the thing here and and i am inclined to agree about this track with you guys um though i'm still at uh, odds about the album as a whole i think in this track even though I don't mind Dave King's different vocal style here, I think it definitely doesn't support the track. I think that with the spotlighting, with his vocals being so different and, and less enthusiastic, I guess I could say, it does let the rest of the track down a little bit. I think if there was more sense of enthusiasm or even... Because uh, he's he's sung with great energy over slower tracks before. So I think if there was something like that that was more in the vein of the stuff he's done before. It would at least allow you to spotlight on him and his vocals, which would help maybe distract from the instrumentation issues or at least give additional content and depth to the track. But because his vocals are fairly bland it does definitely just fall into the mix with the rest of the track. But it also is the vocals in the verses are talking about the gray gray past that is kind of washed out and needs something. So the days we've yet to meet is going to have a little bit more enthusiasm, a little bit more hope involved with it because he's not really super excited about the past stuff, but at least in the future, something new and interesting could possibly happen. So it works in context of the story. I just, I just, like, I think that's my perfect statement. I just needed something a little bit more, and it wasn't necessarily the vocals, maybe, 
but I don't know at this point. I'll read just one of those uh, pre-chorus chorus pairs. Turn back the time before the seconds disappear. The same old clock will steal the minutes it now fears. No telling when or how the hours still agree, for it's tomorrow and the days we've yet to meet. Yeah, it's tomorrow and the days we've yet to meet. Uh, I like the poetry of those lyrics. There's, there's some, yeah, there's a little more to the lyrics in this case. Um, eh, I go back and forth on them, but it, it, it was one of the, it was one of my least favorite deliveries so far, in that they really did not carry for some reason. Let's go to track six now. This is the title track, "Life Is Good." Um. Okay, this is an interesting one, only because, of course, we start off with, um, it's a nice introduction, and despite the title, Life is Good, it at first was interesting that it was a more somber sensation, a somber violin then joined by the tin whistle. Uh, cue the drums for the verse. Now, the opening verse, mm, it was not a bad drop, all things considered. As soon as we enter in here with the verse, it was pretty nice. Said, make this pain disappear, and lead me to this life you'll one day fear. Don't make me belong where I don't belong. Let's just suffer in this silence I can't hear. Now, alright, maybe a little bit of a somber feel that's still persisting, but that does not persist into the pre-chorus. The pre-chorus, oh, we switch this around. This, this sounds like it's channeling the title verbatim, Life is Good. But if I could walk across the ocean, be beside you when you sleep, swim the cold Atlantic waters just to hold you next to me, Oh, and there's just this uh, romp sensation here. It, it's so cheery. If I could walk across the ocean, I... It, it's an ugh. oddball. It is a little bit of just like a jut forward just into, into, into the endorphins of your brain. But the, the somber comes back really heavily in the chorus in a great way. Because while the instrumentation doesn't really go too far away, nope. the presentation of the vocals in the chorus is excellent. It is. And it is the rise of it. Life is good, life is fine. And there's a little bit of a hitch on that end that is just awesome. Why would one say fine after one said good? I it's, wonder. And then why would one definitely say life is everything we loathe? It's so unkind. It's the inflection that this goes through into a rising pitch, rising pitch, and then high to low attack, that it feels like good and fine are painful words, especially with the over-pronunciation of that N. So having a drop-off on it is a little bit of a release of that pain. So we get somber. It sounds happy, but that becomes a faux happiness, which... While the chorus feels like it's a little bit too much of an injection for me, shows that the chorus is a, a unnatural injection of happiness into those words. In this case, of course, you, yeah, you, you fit the theme. You have to wait for it, but you fit the theme very tightly in kind of what I explained with the Adamstown thing. There's, there's, there's irony here. They set you up and then they pull you back. And it's the same kind of thing you saw on the album cover. Life is good, really, is it? Is it after all? But they want you to believe it really hard just for the duration of that pre-chorus because there's, it, it, it sounds like complete delusion. Right, but the pre-chorus is pretty fleeting comparatively of to course. the rest of the track. And so I think it yeah, really that was supports... Yeah, that was not a, a slight at, at the song. I think right. that was, it, thematically, it's to its credit. Yeah. I like what they did there. Um, bleh, musically, of course, I, I think that there are other things they could have done to bring this out. Uh, I think that maybe, if, if, if anything, this was a time to, for the instruments to really shine. But instead, of course, their vision of the life is good is to 
kind of do what I said before about a couple of other tracks, and that was to really make it, I guess in my view, a little bit bland. There can be blandness in denial for sure whenever you're obviously not seeing the uh, scenario for what it is, then you're going to probably not live to your fullest. Maybe that means the music should not exist to its fullest. I, I guess that's the idea here. But I think that there's more to the music than we're letting on, too. I mean, the accordion that's throughout and drones when it's not actually being played for points of emphasis adds to that layer of intentional stagnation, this kind of snow on your brain or static. And I think that that adds to the overall tone of the track. I think that the instrumentation, it's 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 pared down, but I don't think it's bland. I think it's fulfilling the purpose of the track to hammer home the point. I actually would say that in this case, the verses being bland is a positive. I think it really does portray a kind of like a a hodum kind of a feel of just like going along because there's there's an easy back and forth to it but it's a sort of back and forth where you've been walking on the sidewalk a little bit too long oh, a little bit too warm out john said the oh i i could not believe when you compared it to sunny and share yes that was perhaps well, no 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 that was specifically the pre-course the pre-course is right that that saccharine sweet sunny and share like gotta go along to it you you have to like you have to be be shaking that that tambourine and you have to be smiling they really sound like the kind of lyrics too that would come out of like that late 60s variety of feel-good folk so if in this i case, could walk across the ocean and uh, honestly uh, th- that pre-course is going to stick in my craw forever yeah. but i think that's a positive in this case yeah my dislike of that pre-course is probably a good thing well because i think it helps put the entire track in perspective too it's how it's, he wants to frame it for you yeah. it's still a little bit on the negative side but the positive of what it does to make the chorus sound actually so much better and to make the verses feel so much deader actually works yeah i think I think that calling the track bland as a whole, not properly giving it its credit. I think calling it bland is appropriate, both positively and negatively. It's not 100% positive. There is a little bit of a negative nature to that blandness, but it works very well. Mm, I I, I both cannot over-defend this track, nor undersell what I believed to be, as I did in many other tracks, an artistic thematic success. If he wants to go for irony, then sure, success. Absolute success. Um, and I do think that, yes, the musicality is probably better in almost any other uh, element of the song, any other region other than the pre-chorus. Um, it's not, and I don't necessarily even despise the pre-chorus. I just feel that there are some places here where I want to feel more, or I want to feel even more of the thing that I shouldn't be feeling because that's his design. Sure. That makes <laughs> that sense. Went, it, no, it does make it sense. Does. I, don't I just how, don't know how to follow it up. Sure, sure is the best response we can the, give right the, now. Well, also because you don't get either of you don't get either extreme really. You know, you don't. I don't know if I the really feel happy. The song's not about happy. extremes. Uh, they say death is cruel. Death unwinds. It comes unnaturally to all of us. That that that's the moral. That's a takeaway here. But. It's blasé. Yeah, it's that's not the whole about thing. The it's about being blasé about yeah. it. You can have horrible thoughts and still be fairly blasé about them. And, <laughs> okay, and so I've had horrible thoughts and been blasé. Like it's it's a thing. 
So yeah, to hold you next to me, but death is cruel, and I land in the middle because it sounds that's like life. Any, but that sounds like any teenager going through an emo phase. Like the idea that Hell you can it. exist in life, and it could seem pretty bland, even though you're having extremely unhealthy and terrible. I can't thoughts. tell you how many albums we've come across this though, where that is the that is the goal to sound like seemingly to sound as middle road as possible because I exist in this life between both extremes where there is great happiness and great uh, terror side by side. But that's no, no, because it's not middle road. It's dead end verses, happy go lucky pre-chorus. The chorus is the combination of the two. Both voices do show up there specifically because the pre-chorus's sound of an upbeat is still within the chorus, yet the more deadened and pained lyrics of the verses show up. It's showing the combination of the two. So it's not just a mid-ground, it's both sides with the end result in the chorus. I think you're giving it just a little bit less credit than it deserves here. Because I think it's portraying it well. It's not the highest of arts, but it's doing a good job of showing at its core like a depressive state where you do have your happiness and you do have your sadness and your standard operating procedure is a little pissed off, but otherwise okay. An early line was, uh, uh, let's just suffer in this silence I can't hear. Yeah, that's depression. <laughs> Pretty much, yeah. yeah. T-T. There we go. Don't we all suffer in silence? Isn't that just... No. That's not true at all. No, <laughs> I, if you've been on the internet five minutes, you know people suffer loudly and unnecessarily all the time. I bitch Some people lot. suffer really, in silence. Yes, yes, of course. But that's last generation. We're in this generation oh. now. All right, let's move on. To chagrin, track seven, The Last Serenade. Sailors and fishermen, in parenthesis. Well, this is indeed a serenade. Uh, yeah. More in three, it's really more in six, uh, but I, I feel the waltzy quality to this, of course, as well. We're back to a traditional song here, Trad, if you will. Acoustic guitar in the right ear, accordion in the left. I actually quite like mm-hmm. that mixing division. Giving it a bit of a sea shanty feel, um, but more of a sea serenade. Like it definitely, It's a lament. Yeah. I, yeah, That's the word I want to use. Lament's a good one, I, but I get a sense of the sea from it. I'm, I'm in a setting here. I always get a sense. Whenever you're in six, I always feel, I kind of described it not all that long ago. Yeah, probably the last episode as that 6-8 has kind of a heaving sensation mm-hmm. like the waves themselves. The sailors and fishermen go down to the harbor where many a good soul sets sail, but the ships they have gone with the hake and the cod never to return again. Uh, and then the pre-chorus, when our next lives are torn without a captain forevermore, I may have missed that part, um, and then all the something requiem on the waves. Well, this is the, the key moment I wanted to get to because this is a, a pivot chord here that I absolutely adored. I did not actually analyze it, but this was this was quite beautiful because this is like a standout chord moment on the album where you feel a lot of tension here. I absolutely adored just that moment right as he says waves. I, I, I can't describe it uh, accurately because I did not transcribe it. Nevertheless, I enjoyed this moment quite a bit. I think it was the first moment in a like the first moment, just that. I'll leave it at that. It's the first moment that I absolutely adored, barring section, instrument, and all that other thing. This was a single moment, and sometimes I think that that is more what albums need. And something I want to speak to more from the uh, perspective I'm coming at as a Flogging Molly fan is I'm uh, there's a theme here that is throughout their work that they're always sticking up or lamenting or acknowledging the working class or the worker who may have lost their job in Speed of Darkness 
it was the factory workers and the factory closed down and there are no jobs and they can't feed their families. In this song, it's for the fishermen and the sailors who don't necessarily have as much of a relevance as they did because a lot of that has been replaced by machines, the dying out of the fish. In fact, that direct correlation between the fish not coming back and their jobs was, I think, a fair way to play the words. That's true. And actually, yeah, just in that single moment, requiem on the waves. It's a great, see, that's great. The music channeling, you know, the the tension right there wrapped up in that chord really channels that that pain. And it continues with no hands upon deck, you know, the wave in the background. uh, Oh, darling, uh, we've lost our way. And then the violin work that is used throughout this, it's Mm -hmm. very sparing, but it adds an extra little layer of emotion and just like lamentation on top of it, which is why I have to call it uh, a lament. Yeah, sure. It's, It's not used enough. I think, to really overstate it because this feels, it has a stoic nature to it that just is showing a little bit of cracks. We go through the first chorus, but when the second verse steps in, we get a beat. Yeah, the drums come in. Now, I have, I I actually have a lot of issue with this beat because I I feel like it kind of overshadows the little touches of the violin and the inflection that was going on because it evens a lot of the stuff out. It doesn't really expand upon the 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 melody itself. It doesn't really complement the melody. It just becomes a rhythm. This to so, me is very similar as to what happened back in track four, Reptiles, and the fact that the second we kind of like got the voices and we left what was atmosphere, you know, was just kind of a little personal problem because I saw a robbing of some potential. And this was a little bit of the same thing. I did not think that it was a great musical choice to suddenly add drums in this kind of, you know, requiem, sad, sea shanty atmosphere. I don't know, just to to bulk it out that way, I just thought was a little bit strange. I'm using nice words here. It's just strange. I just have question marks. I'm not flat out, like, hating every choice. It's just like, why would he do that? Why would we add something good? We had something good once. In fact, there what? was a really strange piece that showed up that I want to bring up before you before you go into it, and I want you to speak directly about this, Matt. The electric guitar that's there for like two seconds. Well, so I loved it. I loved it. That was a it w- moment I thoroughly enjoyed. If we're talking about moments, that was great. It was such a weird moment, all things considered, though, too, because it was like it, it's just a slow thing, you know, just these single notes, and then he holds that note. Maybe like four notes total happened. I don't know, but it really did not go anywhere except into the bridge instrumental thing which we had a couple other times earlier in the record um actually maybe only one earlier point that we did not mention it but here we get it again with the rapid mandolin strum now this is interesting because it made me kind of rethink an earlier an earlier thing and that was what i just mentioned john just mentioned about the beat about the drums being there in the second verse one wonders of course whether i would have accepted this move from a ambling, not even guitar solo into this mandolin strum emphatic, you know, lighty di di because I felt the emotion here. I think this is one section, full, complete section, that I felt the requiem transpiring in music and even in the, you know, the gibberish lighty dies. I felt it there. It's just the music brought it out. Maybe it was just in the rapid mandolin strum itself. Sometimes it's just one instrument, and that's enough to just cross the threshold but i want i wonder whether the track would have felt as natural if they did not use the beat earlier had they just jumped from here and they kept the same sea shanty feel without the drums 
mm, probably wouldn't have felt as natural. Hence, I have one of those cases where something has kind of been validated retroactively because yeah. sometimes that's how music writing works. I don't think it's I don't think that's like top tier music writing, but I think that sometimes it, it, it can come together. Where especially upon successive listens, you really don't care as much. Yeah, I would say since I did spend a lot of time with this record, and this is one of those songs that I did listen to a lot, I think that I was more forgiving of that strange addition of drums in a moment when I thought we didn't really need it. Um, I think it plays to fill out the track and that when we get to the lighty-dighty parts and the more sea shanty kind of mug uh, shaking, you know, almost drinking song feel, I I feel like it becomes more natural. But I'd be remiss to not agree with Steve a little bit that it did seem odd initially. But also, this song as a whole is a little bit odd um, structurally, and so I think that it does circle back on itself and and even out, but it did seem like an oddball in the first couple listens. This would require becoming more familiar with, I think, to be on board with it. I think like track four, I saw another parallel universe where this track could have gone into a less is more kind of thing. And I know normally I'm like, eh, less is more is passe, too many people are doing less is more. This might have been an opportunity for one on this album, only because it is a requiem. And maybe to really truly indulge in that sadness might have been nice, but then we stepped up, stepped it up with the drums. And once they made that choice, I think they made all the right decisions from then on out. That's that's your uh, your split point for these two parallel yeah. universes. <laughs> all right, all right. Let's continue with track eight, "The Guns of Jericho." And if less is more would have worked previously, we've been desiring a lot more is more, a lot more of building and everything like that. And this track. I think validates a lot of those emotional things we've been we've been kind of harping on, because Guns of Jericho. First of all, first, first of all, it's a reel, and yeah. I, I want to establish that uh, because this is the only the first track. Uh, interestingly, again, on a generally Celtic rock inspired, Celtic folk inspired album that is that has brought us a reel, and there really are there's two dominant things that you see in Celtic rock, and it's a reel and a jig. And we had a jig as of track one. Didn't really seen too many. Jigs. Maybe we had one where it was just kind of a little bit too too slow to be a jig, though we were in the right time signature. Here, this is a reel because it's in four four, and there's just something about the pulse. It it oh, it feels like it can be it can be river danced too. It can be any number of things, and it 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 is fun, very very fun, just from the get go. And that I think is because of the inclusion of electric guitar, purely an updating of an overall sound of something that is very classic. Just throwing that in there. Uh, just it hits me on a little bit of a primal level of of adding literally energy, adding electricity to the track to get me pumped just in the first verse. Another thing that got me pumped was actually his brogue. His brogue is back here, really, really thick at this point, and I, I liked it. I thought it brought again, it brought back some character here. Uh, not to say he's been it's been like absent, but you don't again, you don't notice it this so much in tracks. I don't know if that's always a conscious decision or maybe it's just his writing didn't inspire him to it doesn't come out in those words. But it's really, really here in this first verse. And this first verse also is displaying a uh, playfulness to the way he's singing, his vocal delivery that we've not really had for a few tracks now. His delivery of vocals have been pretty straightforward for the last few tracks, so it's nice to have that uh, fun element. Again, um, and I think it 
again brings his vocals into the spotlight, which they'd also not been for a little while. There's so much fun to be had. There's something in my eye, well, there's something in my throat. Well, maybe I'm not the man I used to be before. Although I'm feeling strong, it's the bed where I belong. Oh, dancing days are over, so I'm sipping on, sipping on a toddy made with love. And who is she dangling on my knee? The core that is my apple or the cruel banshee? Who am I to say or criticize? To devil gave me warning, so I choose to live a life. Well, perhaps I should go to where the trumpets roar and wait to hear the guns of Jericho. He's, he's, he's living life, but... It's, it's actually a perspective that we haven't quite got on this album, which a lot of it has been reflective and a big F you to the world. But here he's he's really calling out the fact that he's old. Yep. Yeah. He's, he's, he's 50. So much fun to be had, as I said. He's he's dealing with old people problems. Yeah. And you know He's what? got a grandkid there on his go. knee, and he's still just like, well, screw y'all. I love that. I yeah. love stuff like that where people retain like the bravado they have. I, I, I thoroughly enjoy bravado. And the track parallels that because once we get that first chorus and then we go into the next verse, verse two. Well, verse two actually just starts building. And this is the first time where it's really just building upon the previous idea without trying to supplement or replicate it to a T. We add a little bit of bass. We add some guitar work, like a little bit more heavy handed on that. That by the time we get to the second chorus, it's a very heavy beat. It's fast. But this is a really earned energy that I feel like previously we had a lot of energy but without a lot of context. Here, he's he's building himself up. It started off slow because, yeah, there's creaks in the bones. But as we go along, he's remembering the past. And this time the past is energizing instead of being a washed out gray kind of ball and chain. This is This is building him up and he's... He's getting back to his core self. I love this progression. And thus the musical irony here is actually pretty interesting because you have all these tracks where the the validation, I guess, thematically in the music is to sort of, you know, bring it back, make it a little bit more mellow just because that's the point they're trying to convey. Here, of course, when you look at the point, the point is he can't dance. You think of anything, you know, this would... Well, on any other track, the music would match it. But because this track is just all about inversions, all about flipping it up, all about irony for the most part, um, then it's a, it's the most danceable track yet. It's it's the first track on this album. One, you know, a, a, an album that, although I started to say in the beginning, uh, just went knowing Flogging Molly, how I, I enjoy in the live setting. I struggle on albums just because I'm not in the live setting. It makes it think. It makes me think that every track is going to be danceable, you know, and I'm just going to be like, eh, well, I'm not there. But I think that's uh, that's all moot now because I would have liked so much more danceability on this album so far. This is the first one that brings me there. This is the first one that actually does get me moving, where it's not just like, ah, oh, curious instrument, oh, oh, that's interesting, or maybe just not feeling anything here. I'm just there's no there's no analyzing it. I'm just moving. It is genuinely fun. By the time we uh, finish that that second verse, um, it's really fun from the beginning, but then it kicks it up several notches. Well, I think also something important to note. Uh, about this track uh, versus previous tracks is also the tra- instrumental transitions are more natural here. There's less sudden stops or um, halting mixing. Here it's an even flow from verse to chorus to bridge and beyond. It's it's the fact that it's not using a transitional piece so much as an introduction to what's next. And that's that's another big plus here is that verse, chorus verse, chorus, bridge, chorus. 
each of these introduces new elements. So while at its core you could say it's quote formulaic, and I'm being mocking in this case, the formula allows them to keep making additions that sound natural because we're going to we're going to go back to chorus. So how do we make the chorus better? They keep thinking of a way to make the chorus better so that by the second one, it's heavy, it's energized, it's ready to go. And when we hit that bridge, the bridge almost sounds like a, a modern version of a jig. Like a jig, a jig at its core, but something that has been modernized to work on a dance floor in New York City as opposed to a dance floor in a barn or something like that. Like the sort of thing that you would feel in a low light with bright lights shining up certain corners of the room kind of a setting. And if I feel like he's dancing on his grave at this point where he's just exuberant about, all right, I've lived life and let's, let's just keep hitting it hard so that when that final chorus comes in, it feels like everything we got before, like the real is, is almost lost kind of purposely where it just feels like it's a modern rock out session where a lot of the elements we got earlier seem to evolved into it well i don't care so much about what was lost because each and every time you add something new it it, it sticks and yeah, it's memorable exactly. and that, like, that's not to say because i wanted to you know comment on what you said before it's not to say there hasn't been like any you know comping or development in the instrumentation from verse to chorus it's just i don't mention it so much because there really was nothing extra special about it it was kind of just you know, keeping the song going, which is churning it along, pushing it to the end. Here, there are there are surprises, there are turns, and and there's just there's fun. There's even there's even a yelp here and there, like toward the end of uh, the chorus. There's like a a yelp to close it. I don't know. It sounds like he's having fun at the same time as he's singing about his old man demise. <laughs> <laughs> right. But it's it's a little bit of a turn as far as the theme of the album goes as well, because. It's an actual celebration of death. Before we had snide, we'll live with it kind of stuff, yeah, 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 and it's yeah, yeah. like foreboding. So, a celebration of death. I'm I'm actually all on board for it. And from there we go to track nine, crushed hostile nations. This bagpipes. Yeah, we got a brand new brand new instrument that we've not heard yet on the record, bagpipes. Um, what's interesting about the intro here with the back bagpipes is that. When they go into the vocals, the bagpipes are playing notes and, and, and being playful, but then going from the bagpipes into the vocal introduction, the bagpipes hang on a note and drone through the vocals, giving the vocals this these this gravitas. Yeah, at first they have the melody and then it boils down to just a drone, yeah. yeah. And and it was his that pair, again, with his vocals, I thought was quite nice. And I, I really gotta say something for his vocals here because they were quite dynamic. Not that he's not usually dynamic. He's an incredibly dynamic vocalist. But this case, they rose above. I just, I really liked the way he wrote he wrote this and, and, and sung it. As the morning rose, the sun exposed the hell that was the day. As the ship struck ground with a mighty sound, we were crushed like lifeless souls. And our hearts, they sank with each wave they crashed. Another life to mourn for the new black flag is the same old flag we've all seen raised before ah uh, that's a that's a that's a good old 
don't know if it's a really a limerick, but it's, it is old-timey, and that can be said for sure. And then it rocks out. Oh, but let's talk about the transition here also, <laughs> because the, the bagpipe and his vocals fade right into the guitar. This was one of the most beautiful, no, the most beautiful transition on the entire album. And into the guitar, we from the guitar, rather, we introduce the violin, which just has this little trill thing going. Um, and then suddenly, full stop for a beat. So that's the progression right there. Bagpipes and vocals, then we fade, and everything just kind of morphs together into the guitar and the violin, felt seamless, and then that beat where it's all just silence before you're rocking out, if we're Yes, we need just the rocking out. Celtic rock, and I have, to amen- I have to emphasize that word here because not like Celtic pop, as has maybe been the case so far. I don't know. It's, just, it's, it's, it's a matter of differentiating, because I'm sure that word means absolutely nothing to anybody else, but it's a matter of differentiating, um, I guess, stuff that does the job with stuff that has a visceral effect on you. Uh, I'm sure I'm going to get a lot of hate mail from, for that, but nevertheless. This, this is a was... fun track, and we can all agree on that, I think. Can't we? Can't yes. we? Yes. But not only was it visceral, I, I am particularly impressed by the chorus because of how I, I, I feel like there, there are cries of, of pain that sound joyful in the chorus, specifically when the words... Crushed, crushed, seven long days is a lifetime we were. And then when we go into the second section, you have him singing, but that background of crushed, crushed, just hammers home the point of, like, misery and despair, yet I feel like there is a gleeful despair going on right here that is is awesome. It's awesome to be able to put two words like that together. I think it's more of a cathartic despair. Like, for once, I'm not just getting it from the vocals, I'm feeling it. His melody, even, it feels worried. It feels emphatic. There is, there is uh, stress to this, you know? Something, the black flag, same as the old flag, living in a world full of hostile nations, and it, everything is just so lively here. I... I I can't. I, I don't know. I can't. I can't describe it beyond that because really, so many things have changed from the early album to this track. So many. So many things. I, I do believe this was obviously intended to be like the signifying climactic track of this record, and it achieved so many things within it. it. It made me wonder why. I guess why we had to wait so long for this. I don't want to make that the whole discussion about this track when talking about this track should simply be just celebrating the track for what it is but it it definitely did lead me to a lot of a lot of wonder as to why this level of of rock and really really good rock had not been felt earlier so let's talk about one of my favorite moments of the album which i think it probably is number two and that is specifically the first note of the metal guitar solo because metal guitar and i mean the genre metal showing up in something that started so differently with bagpipes. It started with bagpipes. And metal guitar shouldn't work. No, no. Context does not work when going from one to the other unless you start pairing them right away. So for me to go that note and then everything that followed afterwards was awesome and felt natural. Like we actually felt like we had a build from Scotland in AD, I don't know how long ago bagpipes were invented, but to modern days... <laughs> I think also, I can't even, you know... Yet. At least I, don't know, five, I can't we're say, say 500 years. We'll, yeah, say, with we'll say ballpark it at 500 years. Yeah. Something that classic feeling of an introduction to feeling as modern as a metal screech 
naturally just emerging in this instrumental section was phenomenal. You know, on paper, you describe it to someone, and I like, guess no. it shouldn't work, yeah. but it, it, it does work. And I'm sure there are a number of metal albums out there and metal artists who would probably take issue with that on the premise that they've based their entire careers yeah. off these kinds of fusions. Well, and that there's a band that specifically did it all the time back in the day. And that's Korn. Korn, Jonathan Davis plays the bagpipes very well, the lead singer, and often fused the bagpipes in heavy rock right, That's songs. news to me. But I, never, not, I never heard that side of Korn. It's not necessarily the fusion of the two ideas that I actually want to say makes that moment great. It's that there is no just idea in that opening uh, in that opening bagpipe in you that don't opening know that drone, it's going there yeah to to be able to be so surprised with the sound that emerges is where i really love this track is yeah. where i really found that moment to to strike me and that all comes back to the writing itself i think the writing can make anything possible that's basically my whole argument here is that whenever you write things in such a way that they sound natural, where you're taking into account every little transition, where you don't sort of shock people, but you you make them like it through the process of composing transitions. Um, in not doesn't necessarily have to be a likable fashion, but just in a, a fashion that sticks with you, in a fashion where you feel where your their your entire listener base is just kind of floating along with you, or ragged, actually being dragged along the path that you choose, rather than you kind of having to. And the, with so often the case between like many verse chorus divisions and one of the reasons why pop structure and why I don't think the pop structure is really in, in, in favor of this album in the earlier parts because I think it's more like you have to convince your audience of something being like well we're here if you don't believe we're here whatever we're here already I don't want to explain it the transitions do the explaining for you um, even if you do have to stop for a full beat to make everyone breathe and question. These are the kinds of things that I just would have liked to see uh, more of, the kinds of things that I like to see in music all across the board. So this track is easily my favorite on this album. Um, and from here we go to a drinking song. Track 10, Hope. Because you have to just, you know, you have to sip a few after that. Well, I honestly... The title says hope, the music says hope, the lyrics say hopeless. And I like yeah. the combination of the two. True to form, as the album does. But we are, allow we are allowed here something that we might not have been able to do, not given the previous track to come before this, because the intro here is not acoustic guitar. It's not, you know, a strummy rolling acoustic. It's an electric guitar. But muted. It's, it's an electric guitar that's muted, and the acoustic guitar does come in to pair with it, which actually makes for a really nice uh, parallel. But I think that taking all of that energy and almost aggression in the previous track to then spill out into Hope's intro being a muted electric guitar is almost like it burned itself out, but it's still going kind or, of a thing. Or it's being covered up with the alcohol that we're imbibing on this track. Even the beat work feels like there's a bit of a muffler on top of it. And we're getting, we're getting that old school singer-songwriter kind of conversation again, which it's not slurred. But it has a hint of, well, he might be slurring in just a moment or so as the alcohol hits full force. Because I didn't really quite recognize this as a drinking song until we got to the chorus. When everyone joins in. 
And yeah. so it's, it's, yeah, it's like, you can, and I can kind of see it coming, you know, even just considering the verse, I felt like it was written in such a way where someone was speaking to a crowd, and so they're being entreated to follow in his path and sing along. Um, I'll just read the first verse. <laughs> it's another eight years of the same bloody fears as the engine that grinds to a halt. No more of... Uh, undetermined. <laughs> These words, they are septic. There's blood on the hands of us all. So let's tune ourselves out, stick our heads in the ground. We'll watch as the tide drifts away. Grab hold of your life. Kiss your beautiful wife. It's gonna all end with a punch. Odd writing there. Nevertheless, we go into the chorus. I said hope. It's still a shout away, a shout away like it was yesterday. I said hope. It's still a shout away, and away we shout once more. So hope is out of your grasp. If you if you shout it, it will not come to you, no matter how loudly. You'll have to shout it again, and that day is not upon you. Well, hope in this case, specifically in that chorus, is them calling for another drink from the barkeep. Um, hope. Alcohol. It's just a shout away, so we're going to order another round. I don't think that's it. <laughs> I think that is what it is. I, I'm going to go I'm going to go to the wall for this one. I think I think, I think that hope is, is eight synonymous. years or eight or well, four no, no, or no. eight years the chorus, away. The chorus is hope being personified is hope being the personification of alcohol in this case. I believe one is supplementing the other. And that the only way to get through the day, to get hope for the next day, is to keep drinking. Which is why it worked for a drinking song. Which is why the first few times I was listening to it, I felt like the chorus was a little bit too lively for the dourness that was surrounding everything else. But why but, would hope be a shout away yesterday? Well, you Was were there no alcohol yesterday? yesterday? Could no. you not have visited a bar then? No, no, no. They were drinking yesterday, they're drinking today, and they're going to be drinking tomorrow. That's the only way to get through the days. Plural. All right, if you want to put it the stand in there, because but obviously it's, it's, I think the alcohol is clearly present. There's no black without tan, said the fiery young man with a vengeance he'll never let go. Um, but then it easily segues. It's just it's using that as the... It's, it's just the, the, the colorful... It's not even a metaphor because obviously, you know, it would make it would definitely drive one to drink. Um, but it's it's the stand-in for the sake of this track. It's it's what you. Huh, how many political tracks? We're gonna get no shortage of them for a long time, and I hope you guys are ready for that. Yes, actually. Yes, yes okay absolutely. You know I'm okay with that. You know yeah, I'm, I'm down with the. Politics. I no, I I actually believe that you will get sick of it, John. Oh, I'm sure I will get I sick think of you it will. one day. But today is not that day. Today is not that day. I'm just gonna be more critical of it. That's all. I don't really care. This, of course, you have to have a drinking song about that sort of thing. Um, yeah, eight years of the same bloody fears and all of that stuff. It's what it it is. What will get people. Over the hump, I guess, for people who worry about this said thing. Nevertheless, let's go to a later uh, uh, verse. I believe this is a verse, yes, but it's one of my favorite lyrics. Um, no matter what the hell your politics are, this is just really good writing. But hope is the killer to those who die willing. May they rest in their peace we, we now break. But hope's none the wiser. It breaks bread with the mindless. There's no ghosts, only bodies of the grave. Okay, so... <laughs> despite everything you want to say, and despite everything that maybe we have said in all safeness uh, a a about this subject in terms of the, you know, bind people together, I hope, you know, yeah, optimism will generally win the day. Clearly not everyone wants to sing about that. Now, yeah, I guess it would be a pretty boring place if everyone did sing about that. And in a drinking song, you generally have the rabble in front of you. You have people who are ready to, let's go get it, right? So, of course, you want to... T 
twist that around. Hope is the killer to those who die willing. In other words, the idea of hope is not the moral here. It's not, like, that is not what we should strive for. Well, if you just have hope, it'll all go away. Does it really? Does it really? I don't think uh, hope by itself without anything else has ever actually solve things on its own. So as, as much as a level head is definitely things oh, we would love to argue on this podcast and advocate for, it certainly is not going to be of much uh, help to those who, who are concerned about said things, be they political or things that affect them in the very immediate future. So hope is the killer to those who die willing. For all those people who are out there fighting, advocating, well, yeah, it is quite a cheapening, I guess, of their actions to just say, well, hope, hope will get you through it. But there is one more line here that I also thought was quite nice. Hope's none the wiser. It breaks bread with the mindless. Ooh, now that is interesting because now that is not only calling out people who, uh, you know, just advocate for hope as the be-all, end-all solution to everything as uh, as inactive, rather, or insensitive, but rather as, you know, mindless rote repetition is going to get you through it. Not at all. It breaks bread with the mindless. Hope is just, you're, you're creating channels, you're creating connections with things that will never come to fruition. That is a dour, dour subject, and probably the kind of thing that only alcohol will get you through. Well, I think that it's more a call to um, inaction and hope. The idea that hope by itself is accomplishing nothing. If you just hope, it's like sending, writing on someone's Facebook post, send thoughts and prayers. You know, that, thoughts and prayers. that doesn't really accomplish anything by itself. Anthony Jeselnik used that, didn't he? Comedian. Uh, yes. Thoughts and, I think he titled his whole special after it. Thoughts but, and prayers. But, but, but it's one of those things where I think this song is, is, is rallying in the sense that it's trying to push beyond hope. Finger quotes, you know, just hope. And the fact that it is empty calorie intoxicant that makes you feel better but doesn't actually do anything Which positive. I would say connects it back to the alcohol also, metaphor. Also, there's a lot of mocking in this as well, not just, you know, writing, good writing that clouds it. But later on, um, he says, well, I'm I, maybe I'm wrong, but I've tried all along to make sense of this. Our pocket's still empty, the virus now spreading the joy of this. Save our sins, we had none to begin with. There's always a day when you hear someone say, wake me up, tell me it's a joke. And he does that. He, yeah. he sneers. Yeah. Wake me up, tell me it's a joke. It's no joke. Yeah. It's no joke. And he repeats that with dead seriousness. Uh, kind of getting... I guess just tired of the uh, the passive complaint of it all. Yeah, you know? passive aggressive. Passive aggressive, yeah, precisely. I I like it. I thought this was a great track yeah. when I when I was able to marry the dour, the happy of the chorus and the message all together. It became one of my favorite tracks, probably think, third I, on the list. I think that Guns of Jericho, Crushed Hostile Nations, and Hope are a great trifecta of music that work really well together. Yes. They're very strong on this record. They are a good trifecta, and I do feel the need just to add this little disclaimer here. We do predominantly a rank or rate or just, I guess, laud based on the musicality and the writing itself. And, of course, the message therein whenever it's an interesting message. If your politics differ from this, you know, there's obviously a bunch of things that people could say, I guess, in response to a song like this, as with any politically oriented track. But I do think that that is a very, very interesting uh, take because I guess it's more of the history is written by the victor's concept in that, you know, 
a revolution is always advocated or rather celebrated by those who benefited from a revolution in the aftermath, but then to people who fear the change of it and are, well, actually terrified of that prospect, then it sounds like a form of heresy. But what's nice about this track, and I want to point that out, is that it isn't a left or right leaning political track. Oh, it's it just is. no, no, no. <laughs> it's not. If anything, it's more mean towards the left side, and how a lot of the left side can easily be categorized as verbal but actionless. Yeah, actually, you know what? The, yeah, well, that doesn't make it not right or left, but it definitely is an argument within. Within the left community, yeah, but it, it like, could be, this, it's this is easily what, applied to the right community. I have heard more th- making light of people who proclaim a belief and proclaim one thing, yet never follow through on it. I I have uh, turbulent opinions on it, but this definitely is lobbed at what many uh, pundits have referred to as the regressive progressive. Yeah, yeah. Track eleven, the bride wore black. It's so a rock. Cap. I, can't, a rock I can't say much more after that. So, uh, keep. So th- this song, at first, upon just reading the title, and what I thought I was going to get was kind of something funeral related. The bride wore black, a widow. But it's not really actually that set of a song, at least musically, from what I can tell. We get some more electric guitar here in the instrumentation, um, which I think is here to stay throughout the end of the album at this point. Um, and we're getting more belty vocals than we've gotten in previous tracks also, kind of returning to his roots as, uh, as far as singing style. But overall, the aesthetic of the track is kind of a road song, which was odd to me, at least considering where we're coming from from the previous three tracks. Well, you have a more rapid rise and then a trail off, a more rapid rise and the trail off in the yeah. verse work, which is uh, a burst of energy and then the 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 long downhill of it yeah. which does promote movement at least in the vocal part of it yeah but it has none of the pep of let's say even other tracks that although I was a little bit you know down on I at least acknowledged some things about them the track was a little more punk influenced was track two, and this here. Well, yeah, this we got the kind beat. Of trots along. A we have bit. like we have the one at two and, but I don't know. There's something about first of all, there's something about that beat in this track even more so than in track two that I found absolutely exhausting. I liked one thing and one thing alone about this, and that was the violin accents. I thought they were a nice addition, but surprise, surprise, the violinist is awesome. Well, there was another part I did enjoy, and that was actually the chorus presentation of a trade-off between harmonies and soloist. The back and forth of it, especially because it's flipped at the end where you begin the final phrase with a solo voice and end with a harmony, that back and forth added an extra layer of texture to it. But um, I want to be just... just, It's a little bit of a self-recrimination going on here in that I I really wasn't paying attention to the words. This is one where I was kind of checked out because, yeah, it felt like a... Uh, another rendition of track two. No, in I'll, a lot of ways. I'll admit that at this point, the lyrics were a little bit more instrumentation and less content for me here. Um, I feel like I'm doing a former guest, uh, Mike Regnetta, an injustice if I don't go, gar content. Because whenever he says content on the idea channel, he says it like a pirate. So I felt like I'd throw that in there. Sure. Uh, um, Steal his material. Wait, wait, wait. Oh. It's an homage. Yeah. Anyway, um, but no, in all seriousness, I feel like. Um, this track, it benefited from the mixing 
the same kind of mixing we've been getting throughout the, the album, but that high quality of mixing does make those violin moments stand out, which you can latch onto. But it's it's jumping from platform to platform. There's not a straight path here. Well, there's a straight oompa. That was that was. But that's a not little, what I'm talking about. But that was getting to me a little bit. Like the eh. in this case, repetition is the negative word. It's not flowing. Well, me. no, I would agree. That's with that. that's the issue. There's no more fence leaning on this particular idea. Uh, it's tough to describe visuals um, in an audio medium, but uh, I made a graph. This piece. All right, get get a, get a piece of paper out, right, and just you know standard computer letter size paper, right, and draw a line along the bottom, um, and slowly let it get a little bit higher. Like maybe let it go about eighty percent of the way across the the page landscape before you get about an inch higher. And then once you get to that point, then shoot up that 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 peak, right, way up to the top of the paper, right. Uh, but only having traveled another inch forward before you go right back down to the bottom. And you will have the arc that I now see this album as in terms of my musical experience with it. That, those, that, that, that peak was the last two, three tracks, right? And now I, I guess the question is, what do you cool it down with? It's your standard rising, climax, falling action graph. And so what do you do with a falling action? How do you wrap up a story? Do you give... Like we just said, all the morals—it's it's all there. And now, it's, how do you wrap this up? Do you do you give Chewie the medal? I don't know. He didn't get one. And I think really I, I, I think we're arguing reference. we're arguing about this right now. Is how do you close out this I album? Mean, I think he never got the medal. I, well, I know. I will say that while I don't agree with your graph, I will say that on the broad, my representation is similar but not the same. Um, yeah. I will say that this track does comparatively to the previous three fall a little short, but is that the fault of the track or the album structure? Again, knowing that they are more or less um, uh, you know, a compilation style band, that the, as far as musical arc, they tend to be a little scattered sometimes. But I, I, I do struggle to remember specifics about this track, which I think is as much a fault of the track as it is the previous three that came before it. I do remember a lot of The Bride Wore Black. It that is, was... The line is repeated. A lot. I, again, I think that this song really suffers from the character of Dave King, that he is not as standout-ish as he's been in a lot of the other tracks. And I think that's where, where, where I find the album to fail musically, I can at least latch on to the familiarity of what I love about his voice and his personality, and there's not even a ton of personality in this track. I'll admit one thing about this. Lyric-wise, I had a little bit of trouble, obviously, procuring this as well. We might There may be things we're missing here. Yeah. Um, I want to just throw that out there, but musically, I, I didn't even find the signature qualities in this. We kind yeah. of returned to my general Celtic pop. Uh, yeah. That's disappointing at this stage now that we've seen these uh, dramatic climactic heights. Track 12, Until We Meet Again. Um, okay, this was only distinctive in the fact that I felt like we were bringing back some, and I think John felt this too very heavily, that we were kind of hopping over to another genre, and that was more of the yeah, country blues territory. Yeah. We're doing a lot of, like, ones and fives here in the bass, you know, and then we change up the chord a little bit, but still kind of the one and the five in said chord. Acoustic strumminess. There's still not a lot that is distinctive, except for that the overall feel here, it does, it feels like a natural conclusion uh, to an album like this. I don't think I have that many issues with it, just 
more the fact that I should have seen some foreshadowing of it. Maybe that's about it. Yeah, I mean, I don't want to skip over the base kind of, not necessarily stepping out, but at least getting a moment to shine because there is a, a length of the intro where it's more or less just the base um, shining through. It's not doing anything special per se, but you do get to really hear how it's been serving as the backbone as it does step away from the other instruments. I think the bass the was the thing. only instrument that I mentioned in that lineup. <laughs> no, you said guitar strumming. Yeah, guitar, was strumming, guitar strumming. No, before that, I said the bass. The 1-5 thing was right. something the bass yeah. was. But, but, I'm, I said guitar I, but I'm elaborating on that, the gotcha. fact that, <laughs> gotcha, the fact gotcha, that gotcha. it does really stand out as the backbone when you just have it there by itself. It We're was, all a little tired. It was specifically we just danced and drunk. The, the pivot back and forth mm-hmm. between that really cemented it as... Like a, tr- a really true country track. And mm-hmm. the other aspect was, especially in the chorus, but in general, uh, the vocals are just from high to low, falling down the scale on the syllables. And that's something I've heard a lot in country that it felt... Ah, I kind of was missing the folk. I was kind of missing the Americana. I thought that was a little bit more favorable. But even when you do get a bit of a pickup, even when... A couple of little elements do jump in that previously screamed Celtic or Appalachian. It it just felt like it was expanding on country. So it was weird to to see just like the final note being almost like a desperado outro. Like well, next time we meet. It's not that strange to me because think about how he views himself. If we're wrapping this album and uh, essentially eventually back to Dave King and how personal he makes moments of it, when he sings about himself in The Guns of Jericho, he does have a desperado kind of feeling about his own death. Like he's going to go out big if he can, or at least that was the energy of the track. This plays into that a bit in that same kind of attitude. I think that ultimately the track itself leans into country and going off into that great sunset as far as the theatricality that he tends to play into a bit. But he's not hes not pulling a John Wayne and making it like a real awesome outro where you're hoping there's a sequel, but it's John Wayne. He's going to make another one of them that are is exactly the same as the previous one. You've got a hundred different movies to choose from for I that mean, case. This was... This was the other guys doing an outro here because it didn't it didn't hit me it didn't impact me it wasn't a lone ranger but right off into like, the sunset but then where's henry like... mancini then you know what like well, where's I, the irish henry mancini in I, this I, instrumentation i mean i feel like that not all conclusions necessarily have to have impact uh but to the oh. same but to the same effect i think that this track just serves a purpose as a resolution and that's not enough. I think I don't need to need the same kind of impact of John Wayne per se, but I definitely need something here, some semblance of more personality than just the basics and the resolution. I think that I want a little more beyond that, like an epilogue or something. Then, you know, put me to sleep. Like, December's first album, Castaways and Cutouts, and also uh, Her Majesty, were very sleepy albums, all things considered. They had their heights. But I almost think that there was more power in in the, the silence. Well, it's not so much silence, but in the lullabies. The uh, lullaby equivalents uh, on that album. Are they Decemberist? No, they're not Decemberist. No, 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 but but I'm, th- not... I'm looking for a definable quality, and so far, I'm kind of having the same issue here I had uh, sort of when you brought uh, K-Flay, where I'm like, the most 
the, the, the stuff that gets me here is the louder stuff. And I do think certain musicians have their, if not preferences, they have their strengths. And I think the strengths here are their more danceable-oriented stuff. I mean, well, I would say that I feel like um, this ending doesn't excite me per se. I feel like a lullaby would be just too predictable. I think that we we often uh, turn our noses up at albums that end in a lullaby when they have this kind of a progression. While there's some truth to what you say, I can easily rank them in terms of importance. Give me predictable. Give me something memorable. This is not as memorable to me. It's it falls in the pack. And I guess I'm going first. Oh, see, I don't want to leave a negative line and then launch into this uh, wrap-up. But I do want to be clear. This is not an album that I, by any stretch, although this podcast, for many listeners listening to wherever we are right now in timestamp land, um, I am not n- nearly as, like... I'm not at strangulation stage. This is not what this album does to me in any way, shape, or form. It is very much, considering I know Flogging Molly so much as a, you know, hand and a half, second hand and a half, whatever band, uh, where I know it well enough that I had expectations. And this met all of those expectations. I I want that clear. And I I knew before I even listened to it that I was going to have a little bit of a problem because of what I said initially. In in that case, I think we're back to a a very severe taste issue. But taste is not the whole entire story. And I've been having these little debates on whether, you know, rating an artist by its own merits is, is really the only way to go. For clearly then there would be no need for criticism whatsoever. You wouldn't need a damn thing. And, well, many people argue, and you can right now, that there is indeed no reason for criticism. Well, it's sort of a matter of a constant cross-checking, you know, in in the matter of peer review, and that's always what I think we wanted to be more so than like, hey, let's sell this album for you, you know, buy it, don't buy it, and we've occasionally fallen into that here and there. This is not what my interest is. My interest is more just in terms of like, hey, look, this is a peer review, and these are some of the things that you might consider as... A, a non-Flogging Molly fan. B, a total Flogging Molly fan. And that's what I just want to address right now. And I'm going to amalgamate them, and that will be my review. Try not to have any skin in the game here. Number one, as a Flogging Molly fan, Matt is 100% right. There is consistency here. It's a lot of consistency. I know people who know their work intimately will differ on the details between how Dave King used to write in the beginning and how he writes now. Just how the band quality as a whole was in the beginning and how they are now. But I think there's a lot of leeway there. Um, A lot of leeway granted to them maybe just because of the genre that they chose. You know, Celtic rock, one begs that it should be sung in a bar because that just feels like it's where where it belongs, no Irish jokes right here, just that it's, it feels like that. there's a drinking song on the album for Christ's sake that's what, that's what it is and if that's the case, then you want the live atmosphere, you want that you want that, that, that sense of I'm, I'm, I'm drinking, I'm with friends I'm having fun, sure there are problems but let me leave them at the door while I'm here in which case there are thematically speaking, I think the album is narratively constructed just like that experience. From the second you open the door and you're like, oi, to the second you've left and you're in a little bit of a, a little bit of a haze when you walk out because you drank, you had fun, you danced, um, and everything has just kind of been set aside even when you know it shouldn't be. And of course, then 
It makes it more complex and quite interesting when you tack on the irony that this album is really pretty good at um, on a track-by-track level. So I think there's actually quite a lot here for the narratively inclined, lyrically inclined, and people who just flat out enjoy anything that Flogging Molly produces. For people who are into Celtic rock, I think there are highs and lows. I think I saw at various points, even though they're not wholly this, I saw some more technical stuff going on in Carbon Leaf back in episode 99 than I really see going here. This album is a constrained album, pop-wise. It just yanks itself back to its verses and choruses, and everything is kind of nicely partitioned. Um, I don't know the genre as intimately as many other people might, for those who aren't just Flag Molly fans, but fans of the genre and would go into this. But I do think, and if they really look closely at their work, I think they're going to find certain things... You know, there's disparity, and this fits what it fits, except for the moments, the moments, key moments, like a track and various other places here where it really excels, and it it opens up because it feels a little bit, it feels like it's lifted some of the burden of the narrative that it tells so well. In other words, sometimes it's got to go for the, focus on the music and let the music explain the narrative more than the narrative explaining the music. And that's the discussion that we've been having here almost through and through, except for obviously track nine, Crushed, and the previous track, uh, The Guns of Jericho, and various other places here and there. So... Yeah, I think if those people look really, really closely, they're going to want more. They're going to want more out of each and every instrumentalist here um, in a more threaded compositional pattern rather than these isolated show-offy points that are, um, as soon as they could get, get good, almost immediately retracted. So that's uh, the other thing that I have to consider. And I don't know, that's three things, even though there are probably more. I probably said them in the album review in general. I'm just landing that they kind of am canceling themselves out in a big way on this record. And when I look at the tracks I'll really go back to, I'm, I'm just seeing, I'm seeing average. I'm seeing average, an album of fairly average quality for kind of an all-around approach. That's a three. That's a, that's a solid three. I can't say it's below that because I just don't see enough here that is bad. I just see stagnation. They're doing them. Wait till the next album. Then you'll see. I, prior to our group listen and some of the arguments Matt made, which I got to hand it to you, Matt. You did a good job for something that I honestly, superficially, was was starting at a 2.5. I was starting at a 2.5. Like, you no, know, it's coming in with the mindset of I either got to argue for myself or you and and or Steve was going to have to argue me up past that that baseline because I didn't see it going low that no no that that was my my bare bones level but there were a lot of good arguments to be had about this um, as see Steve said it's it's got a solid theme throughout and I got to give it props for that that's not something that on a first listen or on a superficial dive you're going to find it it really does the irony extremely well it does the story and the progression of you know walking into the bar getting drunk and leaving very well and it doesn't sacrifice much of the additional content lyrically for that so we're already on the rise musically it starts off i want to say boring but i also don't want to i'm still on the fence on the beginning which 
means that it's it's baseline, but it does start rising towards the end, and it does hit high points. I think it's more than just nine and ten. I think Hope does a great job of being a a ironically charged drinking song, which is I think kind of the definition of a drinking song at this point in in time. It's like they're supposed to be rousing and come together, but also negative, like decisively negative, yet still positive in that negativity. It's also got a little bit going for it with track five, six, seven. It's not throughout just boring, 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 positive. It's, it's, it is a rise upward. I think it's more than just that little bump 80% of the way through the page. I think it, it steadily increases after the first three tracks to actually hit that height, but the drop-off for me is fairly rapid. Once we hit the Bride War Black, I was... I was drunk enough to just be done with it and to go home and try to get some sleep, which I think it tries to offer to me and doesn't quite succeed. So it takes me on a journey, and it's not a perfect night out on the town, but it's a pretty good night. It's not something that's going to be the war stories that you tell in 30 years to your kid as he's coming home, and this is the sort of stories my dad would tell me, not my mom. Not other parents, but, like, you're going to tell your 30-year-old son about that one night out. No, no, it's just going to be, like, an aside of, yeah, you had that really, that night that we overdrank a little bit too much, came home, and woke up with a hangover. But for that, those are still fond memories. Not the best memories, but still, I I still have a little bit of a rose-colored glasses effect towards those. I have a little bit of a rose-colored effect towards this album. It has qualities which are understated and not quite represented by the music as a whole but it's leaving me on a pleasant note at the end of the day where i i'm looking back and i feel like i gained something from it so it's not a three it's definitely above that and it did jump up quite a bit for me to a 3.25 all right uh to let the cat out of the bag and just uh nip nip my pre-album statement in the butt if I were to base this purely as a Flogging Molly album doing what they do it would probably be on par with their worst album which I don't even know if I can pinpoint because I mean Drunk Lullabies I consider one of their worst records only because I think it was a poor follow-up to Swagger however Float, I think, is the most personal record, so I really like that one. We know, we all know on the podcast how much I relate to personal stories. But I think as a whole, um, if I was rating this on the pantheon of, of a Flogging Molly fan, it would be a five only because if you're a Flogging Molly fan and you really like what they do on the whole and grand scale, you're going to like this. So why even go in between a one and a five at that point? If you're a Flogging Molly fan, check out this album because you'd like them. And you'd like it. But that's very um, superficial and not really helpful to what we do here. But I want to get that out of the way. And it's also almost meaningless because I don't even know that I believe I would give it a five even in that context. But on the most base level, if you like Foggy Molly, listen to the damn album, you'll like it. End of story. But that's not what I'm here to do. To, to rate it against music as a whole, I think Steve and John are pretty concise about this, so I don't really need to elaborate much. It starts at a three because there are no bad songs. However, there are only three songs I 
don't feel any sense of positivity towards that I'm either neutral that I'm neutral on because I'm not really negative on anything here. Um, I think that um, I some of the forgiving on tracks is based on my intimacy with the work and with the with the work of this kind. And I think Steve is not wrong to say that some of his stuff has been colored by either an experience with the genre or just as a musician wanting more of all of his music. And I think that if you go into a genre already appreciating it, it makes it easier to forgive things that may stand out to another ear. But that said, I really do want to harp on something that we haven't really talked about with it, which is the arc, musically. Now, you could argue that it's pretty scatterbrained here, but my defense of that would be that Flogging Molly is often scatterbrained in their musical arc. But then you would say, as almost I can hear you typing in the comments now, well, that's not an excuse because you can't isolate it to what the band does. But they're doing, they're doing what they know they can accomplish and what they are good at. And when connecting it to the theme, I think the arc works only because the theme is pulling it together. The arc musically was never going to be from point A to point B because that's not how they put their albums together. It's not how they play live. It's not how they are performative as a band. Um, and so I think to penalize them for it would penalize them for being Flogging Molly. And at the end of the day, that's who they are setting out to be. Um, but it doesn't raise it that much higher either. Because again, uh, I'm coming to Flogging Molly for a certain sense of energy that on the whole just wasn't here on this album. And whether I like the tracks or dislike the tracks, there's definitely a lack of energy here. And that's been a, a, a consistency with the previous record, Speed of Darkness, which I was talking about earlier. Um, so I think that's where it, it really gets hurt for me, um, is that... I just wanted more energy and engagement from the band. I love Dave King. I love, love, love his vocals and his personality and his energy. And Steve is absolutely right in the vocals on a lot of this album. It's just not there. In the same degree it is in tracks 8, 9, and 10. That said, though, the other tracks are not devoid of it. It's just not at the same level. If the whole album is at a 3, those three tracks are at a 5 vocally. There's a lot in between. There's a huge gap there. Um, we've said it to death. The violinist, she's phenomenal. And I, I, I know that she can do more because she's done more in previous records. Um, but that said, I am still quite enamored with Flogging Molly as a band. And so this sits right above John. I think that it's a truly upper average album because it's still way better than any, to me, than and way more intuitive than any of the average albums that we've reviewed in the past so i have to put it at a three five um do i want more from flogging molly sure but i think i'm also falling a bit back on my own uh comfortability with the band but that said this is i i can't put it at a three because this is not the same as your one republics and your bare naked ladies although i think we were much harder on them you know it's just it's leagues above those kinds of things so i have to put it a little higher hmm. yeah 3.1 i know it's not a lot 
I know it's a lot of not, but there's something. But it's it important. Is, to make, it's a statement. But it's a statement. It's important to make that statement because it's not. It's not those other bands that we have. It's not your Fallout Boys. It's not like there is more musicianship here than those bands. There is, and you're right. There is, especially in in the theme and in the writing itself. Yeah. All right. Well, there we are. Another turbulent review. <laughs> um, they're definitely the lowest, though. That in advocate. Uh, the quote-unquote advocate has been though, and how do you, how do you explain that, Matt? Um, I would I would say so. It's funny talking about the advocacy here and and applying that to the album's re-review. I think the, I, I really put that in a place of it's very easy to listen to an album once or twice and perceive it differently than after six or seven. And I think that's what really happened here. Is I was more in line with a four when I first heard it, right? Be- but I think it was also due to my excitement for it being Flogging Molly. I think upon subsequent listens, I saw more of the flaws. I had a better understanding of the album, for better or worse, and so it affected my rating. I'm still an advocate for this album. I would recommend it to Flogging Molly fans or even Celtic music fans because I think there's enough. But it, it definitely, um, you know, I think as an advocate, we have to spend more time with these albums because it's very easy to be fooled upon initial listens. This is a very new album. You gave it the one go or what two? How, what two, two I think it was about? two listens before I suggested that we would do it. Actually, I was, honest. I was the same sort of way uh, the first listen and even like up to about the third listen of like the Vice Quadrant. Yeah. Because I love my Steam Powered Giraffe. I will yeah. always love Steam Powered Giraffe. And I will always go... But why? Why did you do this after like the fifth or sixth lesson of Vice Quadrant? It became like work. Yeah. Like bad work. Even though the first time I was like gleeful uh-huh. listening to it because it was more of what I wanted. It was a Steam Power Draft album. I think, I think something that we're not always honest with ourselves about albums, and it will become more apparent as an advocate, is that. Um, it's very easy to be giddy about something you like and you forgive it initially for things that you may not notice upon subsequent analytical listens. Like, I was intimate with Gorillaz by the time I brought it as an all-pick. I suggested all-pick. Um, <laughs> we did agree to an all-pick, so you didn't bring it. Uh, but but I had been listen- I had listened to that album at least 15 to 20 times before we reviewed it, and so I was way more familiar with the ups and downs. Whereas here, honestly, you know, the last two tracks... I still have trouble recalling them well. And so I think that's just the fault of me not spending enough time with it before deciding to do it and still wanting to follow through with doing it. Well, that kind of crisscrosses with, um, I believe it was last week's discussion, uh, or a recent discussion certainly on how, you know, time spent, how any number of listens could theoretically, uh, I don't know, warp your perceptions, how you just become accustomed to it. You become accustomed to it and equally, you know, uh, non, if you're not familiar with it as much, you gave it the listen and you love it. You you think it's in line with everything you love, but it's just not holding water in, in multiple listens. I, I don't want to repeat that discussion. I more wanted to kind of crisscross this with something else. Um, I will always wonder how I would have rated an album, a, a 2008 album uh, by one of my once favorite bands, TV on the radio, mm-hmm. uh, Dear Science. It's one of these albums that, like, 
I, I think I had that exact same reaction that John had to like Steam Power Giraffe, where like I just wanted a new TV in the radio album. Yeah. I wanted more. I wanted more. I wanted more. Um, just because they were still fairly young, you know, desperate youth to come out in 2004. Then 2006 was Return to Cookie Mountain. I, Return to Cookie Mountain was a hefty album, and it was it was different. Um, still very good though. But Dear Science was an album that I almost instantly just like had this desire i wanted to like it so much mm-hmm. I, I even memorized like almost one entire song dancing shoes um it's just interesting though the more i look back on it i have not listened to that album in ages front mm-hmm. to back like it's just this ancient thing that i felt like i memorized just because i wanted to memorize it unless because it had naturally impressed itself upon me in the way that like so many other albums you know even albums and there's a latent compliment coming your way K-Flay, I'm remember. I've like I didn't listen to that so many times, right? I gave it just a couple listens, but that has been the album that actually has been in my head mm-hmm. for the last few weeks. What was that? That's uh, already three weeks ago now. Yeah. So, yeah, I, like Flowbots isn't really sticking with me for some reason. Well, there are no lyrics on last week's album, but like that's the album that kind of is in my head, despite that I only listened to it so little. Yeah. Does that? mean that I should be going back more? I don't know. Maybe. Matt, Matt would like that. I mean, well, it may mean that your rating may have to change. Uh, no, no. But, but it no. implies I, that, yeah. But, <laughs> but, but no, I, I agree. I think that, um, you know, we can't always predict what sticks with us. I mean, for example, like, none of us would think that to this day, centuries by Fall Out Boy oh, okay. would still stick with us. But but that chorus well, is memorable. Well, it's keep bringing it up. Oh, I mean, that doesn't hurt. Uh, part of it, but I and think... And because you'll remember it for centuries. <laughs> That's brainwashing is what it's called. <laughs> yeah. But, you know, I think that it's important to um, acknowledge that we're in this weird place with trying to bring albums on that affect us in a certain way. I mean, I know for a fact when I brought on Matchbox 20 in the very early days and you guys ended up liking it more than I expected, I was I was gleeful. But, you know, I was mostly bringing it on from a place of I had been waiting for a Matchbox 20 album for so long and I just wanted to bring it on. But at the same time, you got to ask the question, like, okay, you listen to it once and then you listen to it twice and then like five or six times you start really getting a feel for it and you start understanding it. And then what about like when when do you, when have you listened to it too much? When have you actually hit that that point where yeah, you go from gleefully forgiving because it's something brand new to understanding it to gleefully forgiving because it is now completely understood and you know it by heart. Well, right. that goes back right. to the discussion like, I think we had weird. not too long ago. It's that a, it's a weird like is there a number? Five to fifteen. Like, is that is that the rule? Like five to fifteen. We can't listen to an album more than fifteen times before we actually do a review of it, because by that point we should know it by heart, but we shouldn't be rose-colored glassing it. See, this stuff changes. It just yeah. changes, it changes on by album, the album, album it changes to by album. the artist. Yeah. So I, I, I more wanted, weird spot. I We're more so wanted weird. to bring up the point that just when you think, just when we think, you know, we have this down to a science in terms of everything we want to address, there's always that room for hey, this is an it is an, an imperfect system. Yeah. Like, art is, it will always be imperfect just because it, it, it differs from, from person to person. And basically almost to come back to episode one. But it's, 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 the, <laughs> it's that there is objectivity until there is subjectivity. Yeah. Ain't that a fun one? Wrap your head around that, yeah. right? All right. Well, I think... We, we are all objective within our own brains from the moment we are born until the moment we die. And only within that little that little time span right then we can understand all these things until all of a sudden it's out 
it's out. Nothing can be understood at all. Wow, that's deep. Yeah, he always tries to close it with a deep thing. Well, I mean, I usually try and wrap it up into a positive, so we all have our things. Mm. Um, I didn't make any sense. (laughs) No, not at all, but that's fine. I'm going to move on before we have a chance to think about it. Um, (laughs) Steve, before we uh, tiredly uh, move on to what we're doing next week, why don't you give us our music term of the week? This is an appropriately... Tired? Hurts my feelings. I'm excited for next week. An appropriately silly, sleepy... Bizarre word. Hemi demi semi quaver. I'm not even gonna try. No, I'm done. That's an on, that's a that's an onomatopoeia. If you recall, recall. If you recall what quaver means, yes. Do it's like we? a vibrate or no, like a? Oh uh, no, you're thinking quiver. Although actually, yeah, quiver. We did determine when I did quaver as one of the uh, that was sort of a fusion of words uh, of mm. the week. Um, where I paired it with crotchets and minims. Are you getting any closer? Nope. Do you rem- you're not even memorizing these as I go? No. As a glossary? No. no. You have to write a word-a-day calendar. That is sad. Right, well, well, tell us what it means. Quaver, if you remember, was the British form of eighth note. Oh, yes. Where, remember, crotchets were yeah. quarter notes and minims were half notes and mm-hmm. semi-breves are whole notes and all that sort of thing. Well, quaver is an eighth note, so what do you think a hemi-demi-semi-quaver is? A 32nd note. Oh, you're so close. 64th note. There you are. Yeah. 64th. I didn't do enough multiplication. But he had to give you a hint. By the way, the 64th note, which is, of course, a very real thing, um, it pushes human technique to its limit, at least in terms of playing the rhythm. I'm sure there are record breakers out there who've gone well and beyond. But that is the average, like, if you're a competent musician, classical of classical quality or whatever, like, yeah, you'll get to maybe a 64th note if you're good enough, but then beyond that, good luck. You need to be one of those rarities. Unless you're doing eight beats per minute. Like, then you should be able to do a 64th note. Oh, bingo. You with the tempos. Because the second you bring in tempos, sure, you could do anything. Um, You can go to infinity, whatever. Doesn't matter if if it's slow enough, but try to follow that shit. If you can go to infinity, that would be amazing because there is no number infinity. That said, I do feel the need need to contribute the fact that I I, I wouldn't go around using Hemi Demi Semi Quaver in, like, you know, to talk to a musician and be like, hey, look what I know. They'll they'll look at you really weird. First of all, it's a British thing. Remember, the minimum crotchet, that's British. So they're the only ones who are probably going to use it with with any seriousness. And even them, I can't believe they really use this. Like, yeah, that point just call it the damn mathematical division that the they, 64th it's like their imperial thing they have a we- weird measurement weird name for everything but in in the u.s it feels the need to contribute that it is most likely to be used humorously <laughs> okay yeah because uh-huh. we like to make fun of everything and no offense britain you made it too easy this time around <laughs> <laughs> all right well moving on john why don't you tell us what we're doing next week what we are doing is an album by All Them Witches. First off, great name. Love the band name. Is this a debut? Mm, yes. Ugh. But, okay, I made a mistake in that they have released a new album since the one I've chosen. But at the time, I didn't actually know they had released a new album. I thought they only had done a live album since then. And... It's not even because I fell in love with the album, but there was one specific track, El Centro, which is the second track of the album, which I fell in love with. Specifically, that track. Okay. And it's from the album, Dying Surfer Meets His Maker. Also, (laughs) great title. Um, Honestly, I I love a lot of what they do thematically. 
the artwork. I'm going to actually be waxing eloquence on the artwork for the album itself. Um, but I did sample their 2017 release back from February uh, before we brought this on. Um, not too long ago, I actually sampled it. Uh, I'm, I'm sticking with the 2015 release. Okay. Um, I think it's great. I think it's... I think it's great. I'm going to be right up front we'll with that. We'll be the judge of that. I think it actually, it's going to do something. What genre is this? Uh, rock. Okay. We're just going to call it rock for now. Okay. Rock. <laughs> but um, it simplifies things. It's not just it's not just a rock track that intrigued me. It was a eight and a half minute instrumental that intrigued me. I peaked. Some descriptions uh, said that it had some uh, psychedelic. Influences? Yeah, that's why I'm just going to call it rock for now. We'll, just, we'll get to the nitty-gritty. Oh, so maybe we'll be Very back good. towards Os Mutantes again. Ooh. I don't know about that. That was the only true okay. psychedelic album yeah. we did. Yeah. Maybe true. Heron of Living. A little bit of Heron of Living. All right. Well, on that uh, note, we uh, sleepily say to you, and remember, music is life. And, and life, life is good. If you enjoyed this and other album analyses, topics, and guests, please subscribe to the Crash Chords Podcast on iTunes, where you can also rate us and review us. For more media, also subscribe to Matt's one-on-one interview series, Crash Chords Autographs. To receive emails on all new content, subscribe at the top of our homepage. Also receive updates by liking us on Facebook, following us on Twitter at Crash Chords Web, our Tumblr, and our YouTube channel. And remember, keep the discussion going, because music is life, and life is good. If you have any questions or comments, feel free to share them in the comment board below each post. Otherwise, email us directly at admin at crashchords.com.